Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether Brian is morally deserving enough for a million-dollar minimum wage. I'm Rob Wiblin, head of research at 80,000 Hours. I last interviewed Brian Kaplan for episode 32 back in 2018, and when that episode came out, it got more listening time than any other interview I'd done up to that point, and not by a small margin either. It's great to have him back to talk about some important issues, like the self-interested voter hypothesis and how to be a cost-effective parent, but also a number of really fun ones as well, like Brian's track record betting on his beliefs and why he and I disagree on almost every philosophical controversy I can think of. We've got a lot of new content out on the 80,000 Hours website recently, including an article on China-related AI safety and governance career paths, an updated list of top recommended career options, and some short reviews of careers in communications and engineering. You can find our latest content at 80,000hours.org slash latest, or get a regular update when we put out new research by joining our newsletter at 80,000hours.org slash newsletter. And of course, if you prefer listening to audio versions of articles, we'll have some of those coming out for you on our new podcast feed called 80K After Hours, which you can get in any podcasting app you're getting this. All right, without further ado, here's Brian Kaplan. Today, I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan. Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of, so far, four books. Those are, in order, The Myth of the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Why Being a Great Parent is Less Work and More Fun Than You Think, and Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. Brian loves the uh, double-barreled book name. He also recently published a compilation of past articles titled Labor Economics Versus the World, Essays on the World's Greatest Market. Finally, he's working on a new book with the enigmatic title Poverty, Who's to Blame? Agree or disagree with him, Brian is someone who can tell you very clearly what he believes and why. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, Brian. It is an absolute pleasure to be here, Rob. I hope to talk about what it takes to truly mess up your kids uh, and what people most need to know about the labor market. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? The main thing I'm doing actually is I am finishing up another nonfiction graphic novel on housing regulation called Bill Baby Bill, The Science and Ethics of Housing. It's modeled very much after my previous Open Borders book. I had so much fun writing that book, and I think it actually was my most influential book that I've ever done. It really was a great chance to take a lot of research that is intellectually great, but almost no one will ever even hear about because it's just too boring, then to repackage it in such a way that people actually want to hear about it and remember it. I find that by combining words and pictures, you really can improve retention as well as comprehension. Just the general way that with the other book, not only was I getting a lot more minutes of people's time by being more entertaining, but I think I was getting more learning per minute. And there is so much to learn that you really want to get those two numbers up as high as you can to get the information out there. Yeah. How much more work is it per like point that you're making to do the graphic novel versus the more academic book like uh, The Case Against Education? It's probably about 10% as much work for me. <laughs> it's a lot less work. Because the thing is, I don't draw the books. I visualize the books. I do pre-visualizations using Google Images and some uh, archaic comic editing software. Then I have the artist draw drafts and I micromanage the hell out of them because I am a perfectionist in that way. <laughs> but again, like for me, like, like, you know, this is just so much fun just getting to go and find a person with this magic power of being able to draw what I am picturing and then make them do it exactly the way I want. Um, I mean, it really, it re- but it really is a lot, a lot less work. Often what I'll do is I'll actually have the whole thing figured out in my mind. And then when I'm actually writing the book, I'm just thinking about interesting visuals. And I do a lot of Google just to see what images are out there, just to give me ideas and get the artist started. Yeah. 
I'm very excited about the idea of you just producing lots of these graphic novels over the over the rest of your career, basically on all these topics. I do actually have a tentative plan with the Cato Institute for there to be a whole library of these books. It does depend upon the next book being successful, but we shall see. I'm optimistic. Compared to your previous claims in various books, I think uh, you've got a relatively easy case to make with the housing that I think it's easier to convince people that we should have some houses than it is to convince people that education is bad. So hopefully, well, I don't like stopping with the easy stuff. (laughs) Right, right, right. Okay. I mean, the book is called "Build, Baby, Build," so it is letter rip. And I do make the case just for full deregulation and say even the regulations that seem to make the most sense. The slippery slope argument, if it's ever true, has been proven true for housing. You can really see at first they just get a couple little regulations on there. What's the big freaking deal? And then you see eventually it metastasizes into this crippling set of rules that we now live under. Yeah, you have uh, heritage listing laws for an amazing opera house from hundreds of years ago. And pretty soon you've got heritage listing laws, I think, for a disgusting car park. I think in Berkeley there's some famous case of this where they were trying yeah, to pre- historic pretending- parking garage. <laughs> historic parking garage. Anyway, let's start out with your newest book, uh, Labor Econ versus the World. As I mentioned in the intro, you recently put together this compilation of articles that you'd written over about the last 15 years covering the labor market. For those who don't know, is the market for hiring people to do jobs, typically in exchange for money. You make a lot of points in there that I'm not going to get to all of them. So people will just have to read the book if they want to find out. But what do you think it's most important for the audience of this show to know about the labor market? The most important thing to know is that just because a regulation sounds good does not mean that it is actually a good idea or helpful for workers. I often teach my students about the Brian Kaplan Protection Act. Say this is a law where it says that anyone who wants to hire me has to pay me at least a million dollars an hour. Any dispute about my treatment is adjudicated in a court run by me. I receive unlimited (laughs) benefits. Everyone has to call me your lordship or else uh, there's a million dollar fine for every failure to call me your lordship. And then the question is, is this law good for me? And everyone wants to say, yes, of course, this law is good for you. I say, well, what if I don't have a job yet and people know who I am? Then is the law good for me. And then everyone says, "Uh, no, then you'll never get a job. Exactly. And this is the same logic behind every labor regulation that exists, really, is people think of it as just a gift to the worker. And yet when you realize that normally you don't have to actually hire the person in the first place, the question is, do you really want this gift? Another example that I like is I often ask my students, imagine that we had a say $20 minimum wage, but only for blacks. Would that be good for blacks? It's like, um, hmm, well, then you might not hire them because of that. And you might just hire someone else. So great if you're black and you have the job, but if you don't get the job because of the law, then it's not so good. So that really is the logic of almost all labor regulation out there. People really do like the idea of just saying, you have to treat workers better, you're mean, and it is not actually the slam dunk that they think it is. And then once you accept this, then you realize that a very popular story about why workers get better treatment now than 100 years ago is just that we have more laws. And you realize, well, gee, what would happen if you imposed a modern minimum wage in a pre-modern era? And the, the answer is, look, that would, that, would, that would mean that you have to pay your workers more than gets produced in a year. So you know, like, what would really happen is that cause mass unemployment, or actually more realistically, there'd just be a massive black market because the people have to either break the law or starve. Even in North Korea, they will break the law. Right, right. I guess I, I imagine that most listeners to the show, or perhaps I have the fantasy that most listeners to the show would be thinking about labor market regulations the same way that I do, which is kind of striking this trade-off between wanting to raise the conditions, but also not wanting to discourage employment. And so you maybe have some like intermediate level where it's like, perhaps the optimal minimum wage is like a bit higher than the free market uh, minimum wage, but not as high perhaps as you would ideally uh, like if there were no constraints. Do Do you think that I'm delusional that that's how most people think about this? Not exactly delusional. I think that that is how smart people, if pressed under cross-examination, will explain it. I don't think this is what even smart people actually think. I, what, I think what most even smart people think without reflecting is the more the better. And the countries that have the, the strictest regulations are the best countries. 
Now, part of the case that I make is that economists do make one mistake, which is focusing solely upon giving workers income, and they forget that we have a lot of evidence from psychology that unemployment per se, it causes great misery because people's jobs provide a lot of the social contact that they get, provides a sense of identity, sense of meaning, sense of purpose. You know, during COVID, I think a lot of people felt like I did. I'm still getting my full salary, and yet I'm all alone in my basement. And like, I mean, it felt like being unemployed. The money's still coming in, but I no longer have any place in the world. And that is the way that a lot of people actually feel about, about their jobs. And you know, once you appreciate that, then I think you realize that you know, like saying it's just a trade-off between destroying jobs and improving conditions. Well, I mean, I think actually the end point of just saying, look, we really don't want to do anything that's going to reduce employment because it's not just about the money. It's also about having a place in the world. And on top of that, you know, very worth remembering that it, uh, working is one of the very best ways to improve skills and do something better. Now, that's why I don't, I don't know about uh, the UK, but in the US, we do have one big exception for the minimum wage laws, which is the unpaid internship. And this is one where people realize, oh, wait, if we said you had to pay your interns minimum wage, probably that would lead to a lot fewer internships. So let's just allow this. And there are, you are paid in other ways. At the same time, there is a lot of self, self-righteous resentment, especially universities, about the horrors of unpaid internships and how unfair it is. And as a university professor, my thinking is always, are you out of your mind? We charge people giant piles of money. You know, so they get a negative wage to come train with us. Like, like the, and we should still feel superior to, to firms that go and offer training for free in exchange for going and getting people their coffee. What about a strange attitude? You mentioned how people like gain value from doing a job above and beyond just the salary they're earning, that they might actually enjoy going to a job in, in some sense. I guess I often think of this kind of as the reverse, that people talk about when people are like no longer in, in a job, it, like obviously this, they're kind of outside of GDP, like they're getting all of this leisure time now that they don't have to work, but that isn't countered in kind of economic statistics, basically. So just as like the psychic benefits of work that are non-financial go uncounted, so does the benefit of not having to work. How do we tell like which one of these effects is larger? It's a great question. In psychology, they've done a lot of work just on the pure unhappiness of unemployment. So these are like actual happiness studies where you go and asking people, how happy are you on a scale of zero to 10, or there's other variations on it. And the main punchline of this research is that unemployment, even if you do full compensation of income, is an enormous hit, one of the biggest measured hits to human happiness that we really see in richer countries. So, I mean, I say there, it's just quite obvious what's going on. You are right that GDP does not count leisure. So I don't think that, like, in terms of the evidence that people like working, like, tons of hours, as far as I know, that isn't there. And I, my guess is that it's not true that people like working tons of hours. People basically want to have something like a full-time job, maybe a bit less. That's where people feel most happy with their lives overall. Again, it's not just pure skipping around happiness. It's also just a sense of purpose. And honestly, a lot of it is just lack of the sense of meaninglessness that I think many people felt during COVID is like, well, like, what is my place in the world? What do I do? I could sit around watching TV, but that's not really all that fun for most people. So I know you, Rob, so you seem to have a great capacity to enjoy leisure. A lot more than most people have. And, you know, I actually have a lot of capacity for that too. Although for me, almost all of it depends upon there being other people around to go and do fun stuff with me. I don't have that great of an ability to be super happy all by myself. Actually, I've asked many friends, how long do you have to be alone before you feel lonely? And I am pretty much at the very low end where I feel lonely after about two hours alone. I have friends who say they can go a whole month without any people around. And I'm like, huh, like, I mean, wow, I'm kind of surprised <laughs> you even hang out with me given the way you feel. <laughs> yeah. So I'd say the audience for this show is probably lean center left, uh, left on these issues. And there might be a bit of skepticism about uh, some, at least some of the claims in the book. What's a change to how labor markets are allowed to operate that you think is really valuable and which you could properly convince uh, that this audience is, is, is also good? 
I do have a second section of the book just on open borders on immigration. So I think this is actually the single most important area of the labor market to deregulate. Right now, as you know, Rob, it is virtually impossible for most people on earth to go and ever get a chance to work in the first world. If you're very highly skilled, then you have a shot. If you've got close blood relatives, you've got a shot. But most people on earth, they could go and try to get on the waiting list and they would die before they would ever get permission to go and get a job in a richer country. Yet the economics of this is really quite clear. The reason why they want to go to richer countries is that their pay is a lot higher. And I'm not talking 20% higher. I'm talking often 10 or 20 times what they're currently earning back in Nigeria or Haiti. The reason why firms in the first world will pay so much more than in Haiti or Nigeria really has to be the productivity is so much higher in the first world, which means that what immigration laws really do is they trap human talent in places where there's low productivity which not only impoverishes the would-be immigrant, it impoverishes all the customers that would have gotten to enjoy that extra productivity. Yeah, I guess uh, we're recording this a week after Russia invaded uh, invaded Ukraine, which has brought up the kind of geopolitical aspect of this immigration as well, that uh, we're putting sanctions on Russia, but a different way of like making it more difficult for the Russians would be to take all of their human capital, which like not oh, yeah. only, like then costs them GDP and like gains us GDP uh, by accepting people who are able to do a lot. Absolutely. So, you know, the idea that like, everybody in Russia thinks this is great and wants this to happen is, is absurd. There's little doubt there's a lot of malcontent people. Just because someone isn't demonstrating the streets in order to get thrown to Siberia doesn't mean that they like it. Just because you're an oligarch and you're close to the regime doesn't mean you like it. I think probably the best bet for change is coming from very rich Russian cosmopolitans who don't actually care that much about Russian nationalism, but do really like making lots of money. And they've seen their fortunes maybe fall 90% because of this nonsense. Yeah. So you've pointed out some of the ways that the kinds of labor market regulations that people typically turn to in order to improve the well-being of workers, that they can backfire and they're like a really double-edged sword. But ideally, I'd like to, I'd prefer to live in a country where the poor consume more than I expect they will if things are left completely to the free market distribution of income. If I were a top legislator in a country, how would you suggest that I try to accomplish that goal, if not through these means that you think are uh, problematic? Through direct redistribution. I mean, the whole problem with labor market regulation is that you aren't just going and transferring the extra money from employers to workers. You're also changing the incentives to hire and the incentives to work. Uh, at least with redistribution, you're not directly going and taxing employment. In the US, we have something called the Earned Income Tax Credit, where essentially at low wages, the federal government goes and gives you some extra pay, which means that if you're poor, you have an extra incentive to work on top of just getting the money. So you know, it is a great program for the working poor. Of course, there's a lot of people who are annoyed that it does that it does absolutely nothing for the non-working poor, which you may consider to be even more desperate. But on the other hand, it's also a much better way of getting people more experience and actual practice working so that eventually they don't need to be helped any longer. And you know, the you know, main thing to remember is that the main way that people actually improve at what they're doing is through getting experience. And if the current wage is too, so high that nobody wants to hire you, you don't get experience. So it's much better just to do an entry-level job. I mean, for a long time, actually, economists have been puzzled because there's a lot of people in America who work. And yet, if you look at what the, the money they could be getting on welfare, they actually make less money working than they, what they'd be getting in welfare or maybe exactly the same amount. The simplest story here is they just don't understand the system. But another possibility is that they don't want to stay poor their entire lives and they realize this is an investment. I go and do a job where effectively I get no extra money for a while, but then I open up future opportunities to me. It's very unusual in the US to earn the minimum wage for very long. If you just get almost any job and stick to it for some months, then you get a raise and you're no longer earning the minimum anymore. 
Okay, so so you've laid out the case for, uh, which I think is kind of the, the mainstream view among like many economists, or at least it used to be, that it's better to redistribute money just directly through the tax system and then subsidizing wages, or I guess even just giving people unemployment benefits or like universal basic income or something like that, rather than intervening in the labor market. Many people might be surprised to know that a country like Denmark, which is viewed as like very much a haven of social democracy, kind of broadly takes an, an approach like this, where they do lots of redistribution, but not much labor market interference. But what would like an, a smart, informed person who is in favor of the labor market intervention directly, what like defenses could they offer of their view? A great question. So my colleague Dan Klein once found there was a public letter signed by a bunch of economists advocating raising the minimum wage. So what he did is he actually emailed them all, he wrote a survey and emailed them all asking them, why? Why did you sign this letter? The answers that he got, so one, the most economistic one is, I just think that the sensitivity of employment with respect to the minimum wage is fairly low. So there's that one. And then there were a lot of symbolic answers of, well, it's a sort of a symbol of how we society don't want to go and let anybody work for that level of money. And then there's also the, well, they're just better off on welfare if the uh, wage is that low. The last answer really, again, just ignores all the psychological evidence on the misery of unemployment and how it just makes people feel really bad about their lives. And again, just the idea of, I wouldn't like doing that job at McDonald's, therefore nobody likes doing it. This is just so wrong. It's such a colossal failure of empathy and to get inside somebody's skin. It is true that the higher status your job is, the more likely you are to report that you have high job satisfaction. But it is not like people in low-skilled jobs generally report that they are miserable at their jobs. And you know, if you're wondering, like, well, why aren't they miserable? The answer, like, when you ask them, the answer is, well, this is where I have people that I talk to. This is where I interact with people. I mean, yeah, one really great point that Tyler Cowen has made is that if you think about people who are in very, you know, in very poor families, very often their families are dysfunctional and their job is the one place where they can go to where it's orderly. So at home, there may be you know, great family strife, alcohol problems, drug problems. You know, someone's unemployed and is mad about it. The teenage girl is pregnant and the family is really upset and doesn't know what to do. And then someone from one of these families can go and work at McDonald's and here things are running like clockwork. And it's actually a comfort to a lot of people to be in, a, in a, such an orderly place. When I was in Costa Rica, I went to a area that I will describe as fairly frightening. It was uh, Limon. Now, the trash problem was so bad in Limon that really, like I'd say about the average depth of trash in the streets was about six inches, All right? So basically, if you just walked in the streets, you would be walking in trash. They had a very nice modern McDonald's there, and one of the tour guides was saying that was like the best place in town just to go hang out. Now, of course, working and hanging out aren't the same, but if it's the very best place to hang out, sounds like it's, a, it's one of the better places to work as well. At least you're around, people are happy, and you just interact with people who are feeling so there's something positive going on in their lives. So it really is important to think harder about what it is like for another person who's working a job and not just to think that person must consider this hellish and horrible. Obviously, you know, you can go to Reddit. Like my 12-year-old son likes to read the anti-work Reddits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can be fun sometimes. And yes, and he, come, he comes and tells me, Dad, I can't believe what these people are saying. On the one hand, there are people who hate their jobs and are just angry every second they're there. Those people are especially likely to go and start a Reddit and complain all day. On the other hand, someone who feels like it's the least bad part of their lives is not likely to be going and announcing it. It's just something that's important to them. And just really listen, you know, see, you know, like there's another classic work, Studs Terkel's, uh, you know, Working. I actually read the graphic novel version. It's a very good graphic novelization. And again, you know, like just like talking to people, it is very abnormal for people in almost any job to say, this is terrible. I hate it. Rather, people focus on the social element, especially even in the, the jobs that you think of as like, who would ever want to do that? It's like, well, these are the people I know. This is what I do when I wake up. This is what gives me structure. It's not just a paycheck for people. Yes, I saw a survey recently of, uh, I think, of Americans and something like 80% from memory uh, were either like partially or like fully satisfied with their with their work, which is, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, 
I'll, uh, I'll stick up a link to that. Yeah, you know, there's always what I keep harping on, social desirability bias. Of course you do. There, you know, especially in America, we frown upon complaining. You would think that's impossible if you read Twitter and say it's all complaining. But again, there's the big difference between the squeaky wheel that gets the grease and all the normal wheels that are spinning around quite silently and happily. Yeah. Uh, so you, you know, keep, have to keep that in mind. But again, the idea that like, most people just sort of are... are feeling self-pity for like as normal. I debated two socialists for uh, public radio in the U.S. And yeah, you know, like, like they were acting like even being a tenure professor is some horrible ideal. You know, they say, you know, even we comparatively privileged professors, comparatively privileged, you're not comparatively privileged. You're absolutely freaking privileged. Like you do whatever, you get paid a nice salary to do whatever you want. <laughs> so like, what are you talking about? Like, what would it take to make you happy, man? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe in a post-work future where AI is doing everything, they'll be, they'll be very pleased. Let's push on and talk about uh, immigration, which you, uh, as I mentioned, covered in your book called Open Borders, which basically advocated for open borders or at least something pretty close to it. As you said, most listeners to this show are going to be pretty sympathetic to high levels of both skilled and unskilled uh, immigration. And they probably care both about the humanitarian benefits as, as well as the potential to speed up science and technology and you know strengthen the countries in which they live by having more people achieving their potential. By far, I think the biggest reservation I hear among listeners is that much higher immigration is going to shift the culture of receiving countries in, in some negative direction or other. Basically, because we should expect people to emigrate from countries that have values and cultures that are less conducive to human flourishing. Because after all, like low well-being is one reason why people are leaving. And for the same reason, we should expect them to move to countries with cultures that are more conducive to human flourishing. And within reason, that's fine, because people will mostly merge into the majority culture, adopting its like hopefully preferable way of life. Can you see that there could be any level of immigration at which that kind of integration process would slow down too much and kind of harmful cultural practices would have a worrying opportunity to become dominant or persistent and kind of partially kill the goose that lays the golden egg, so to speak? Logically speaking, it's totally possible. I never want to say these things are inconceivable, could never happen. What I want to say is let's look at the actual evidence that we have and see whether this is in fact a problem that, first of all, even exists, and second of all, is it remotely comparable to the gains? I mean, one thing that I really became aware of during Open Borders is that you can go and say, look, we've got estimates of $100 trillion of gains for something. Then someone says, yeah, but I have 17 arguments against it. It's like, yeah, well, each of those 17 arguments is maybe like a $1 billion argument. So it doesn't matter how many of these little petty arguments that you come up with. It's like they're just rounding errors by comparison. And yet in a public debate, of course, you win not so much by, you don't really win by the numbers. In a way, you win more by just the sheer number of, of arguments on each side. You could have one really huge argument, bulletproof, and you, you know, like you know, in terms of any kind of you know, effective altruism standard or cost-benefit analysis, you should th- just summarily win. Yet rhetorically, you don't win when someone has a bunch of other arguments. This one at least somewhat seems like it scales to some extent with the benefit, because obviously if you like kill the culture that was producing all of that GDP, yeah. Quite right. Now, when you actually listen to cultural arguments, you know, one problem is that they're so vague that it's hard to really find out what they are. So like, like, you know, what I do is I start, let's start with these specific ones, things like language acquisition. And there I will say that we've got quite good data on language acquisition and there's just no sign that there's any serious problem. Basically, the pattern is that, you know, even in very high immigration eras, first generation immigrants uh, who come as adults rarely achieve true fluency. This was always the case. You know, even the all like, you know, like 1900, we like, the the census had different questions about language acquisition, but still fairly comparable. And it's just not true that, when someone showed up from Italy at the age of 25, that they became a fluent English speaker during their lives. But then the second key thing is the second generation, both today and in the past, almost always does achieve full fluency. So language acquisition is one where it really just doesn't hold water. In terms of other ones that people have actually done social science on, like trust, this is one where there is a substantial literature on especially trust assimilation. 
which I say is very favorable. It is not true that the kids of people from a very untrusting country remain untrusting when they grow up in a high trust country. So there's that. So people then often start, you know, your cultural sort of bleeds into politics and say, well, what about the political views of the immigrants? What about the political views of their kids? Once again, I'd say, you know, first generation, often they do have political views that would frighten you, but their kids, on the other hand, have very high assimilation. Now, the question is, can you keep counting on this assimilation to work when you have much higher levels of immigration? Here's the you know, key thing to, you know, to know about the U.S. So we actually multiplied our population about 100 times over 200 years. So that basically means every century you're multiplying your population tenfold. And you know, if you go and take a look, we did take a lot of people that were very culturally different from the original rivals, and yet it's very hard to see much more than you know, like, like any substantive problem with this level of assimilation. And again, if you go and break it down, remember there's the math of exponential growth. So if I remember correctly, you can multiply your population tenfold in a century by having your population grow by 2.7% per year. That's just not actually that unmanageable. It's, it's one thing if you think about a billion people show up tomorrow, but that would never happen. You need to think about it as a snowballing process. Now, the other thing that's really worth pointing out in the modern world, which is very different from the past, is that, you know, 100 years ago, when someone showed up from Sicily in the United States, they probably really were very culturally dissimilar from people in the America of the time. They probably actually barely knew any English. They might have not even seen electricity until they were in the city where they got on the steamboat in order to get over here. Now, actually, it is quite different. There is a massive level of what I call pre-assimilation. This means people who assimilate before they actually come. Right now, you've got about a billion people who are not in countries where English is the first language who still speak very good English. And it's not just limited to English. This also is just a whole lot of cultural pre-assimilation. I mean, the way that I like to put it is this. If you go to the most anti-Western countries, it's not like the policy of those countries is to say, you can do whatever you want. We don't care because we know that your loyalty to our home culture is so great. There's just no need to go and apply any pressure. Instead, what you'll see in countries that are very anti-Western, like Iran or Saudi Arabia, the governments, it's important to specify the governments are very anti-Western, is that they are waging a constant war against Westernization because they have a sense that if they don't, they're going to lose. And they're going to lose even in their home country where they've got their hands firmly on the lever of power. And yet they think, look, if we just allow Western culture in here, the youth are going to greatly defect from our cultural ways. Really what immigration is, is a chance for people to escape from that kind of repression and also to be in a place where the culture is at a much higher dose. I have this piece that I wrote called Western Civilization is a Hardy Weed. And it comes down to it's kind of odd to be a big fan of Western culture and then say that it's always teetering on the edge of collapse. So fragile, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like saying, look, you know, the Rolls Royce is the best car in the world, but you have to maintain it perfectly or else it will explode. It's like, well, what kind of a car is that? That's not a good car. It's a terrible car. But like, I have a lot more confidence in Western culture than many people who think of themselves as the protectors of Western culture do. I think that it's winning right now. I think that the only reason it isn't spread a lot further is because of government repression in other countries and other cultures. And I think that when immigrants come, you know, there really is a very high level of assimilation. Something I say in the book, but I, you know, I think this is actually a very compelling test. You just talk to any immigrant parent and ask them about assimilation of their kids. I have never, ever met an immigrant parent who says, oh yeah, there's like, no, my kid is totally with me on my culture. There's not picked up anything from this foreign culture. I'm so grateful for that. You know, my kid, so you speak, you know, my grandkids are learning fluent Hindi. You know, like, like instead, every immigrant just says, look, this is, you know, like, oh, this is really depressing. Yeah, you know, my, you know, my kids barely care about my culture. My grandkids don't even know what the culture is. 
this is the real story of assimilation, and it's the one that you know, I think we should actually bear in mind. The worst way to get your view about assimilation is from the news, because what are they doing? They're always trying to find the most horrifying stories, the ones that will shock you to say, you know, this guy was the son of, of three generations of westernized doctors, but when he turned 17, he joined ISIS. All right. You're like, it's a big world. You can always find horrible things, but that does not mean it is normal or, or expected, and it's not the general pattern of things. Yeah, yeah. I guess to try to steel man the, the position, I suppose it is somewhat counterintuitive, say that you could, US is a country of 300 million people, that if you brought over 100 million people, say, from a country with quite a different culture, that that wouldn't then have quite a lot of staying power, the same way that it kind of does in the country that all of those people are, are coming from. And I guess I'm sure we've seen like episodes of massive migration in the past, but if, if you were to go like full open borders, then we would to some degree be out of sample, like out of historical experience. And so we can't be completely confident how things would, would pan out, which is why I think people are using the kind of intuition uh, and maybe they just have to some degree a different intuition about how infectious Western culture is. I mean, I actually agree with you, Rob. We can't be completely confident. I'm not completely confident. People have said, well, wouldn't you be scared if you know, like, like three million foreigners showed up this year? And I said, yeah, I'd be scared. I'm not blind. I'm aware that things go wrong in the world. However, first of all, yeah, like, you know, super unlikely you would actually get 300 million in a year. But in any case, so look, on the one hand, there are these tail risks that you should be mindful of and confront very seriously. On the other hand, there is the continuing horror of the status quo, which is very easy just to go and act like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. It is really bad to be in Haiti. To go and say, like, sure, they could go and get jobs here and take care of their kids and basically solve all of their very really serious problems. We would just go and stamp their passports. But there's a 0.01% that the chance this could lead to something terrible. It's like, all right, yeah, you know what? It's just not reasonable to go and be that risk averse, especially when the harm that you're imposing on the would-be immigrants is so immense. Yeah. To some degree, it's a little bit pointless to talk about these like super hypothetical things because it, it can't explain current immigration law because the US doesn't even let in lots of people from countries that arguably have like superior like policy settings or superior, <laughs> superior culture, to Americans, at least in some Rob. <laughs> I, I, sorry, I have to end this podcast at once. Exactly. Uh, the idea, <laughs> very idea of anything superior to Americans. <laughs> They've managed to catch up with the US in, in quality for now. I guess an alternative um, objection that people raise is basically like, doesn't this get people like Trump elected for less? So, you know, immigration leads to this kind of reactionary backlash, which then causes the, the person who's elected to both like reduce immigration and do a bunch of other stupid stuff. What's your take on that? My take on that is that, well, several. First of all, in terms of the actual evidence, I think that it's pretty flimsy. In the case of Brexit, I mean, what we really see is that the areas with the highest foreign-born share were actually the ones that were most likely to vote Remain. The fallback position people had as well, it's the places that are the largest change in, uh, in the foreign-born share that were against Brexit. But then it's like, well, that's just a short-run effect, and it sounds like what we really need to do in the, you know, like for long-run change is just to get immigration up as high as possible so everyone has the same attitudes as they, uh, towards foreigners as they do in London. Uh, you can call that the shock doctrine, but I like the shock doctrine, actually. Like, if you really could just shock the world into a better equilibrium, you know, go ahead, why not? Some people might say that part of what's going on there is that yeah, people have selected themselves into cities based on kind of a liberal like personality. And then there's people in other other places that are both like more rural, less open to foreign cultures, uh, and also tend to attract fewer immigrants because there's fewer opportunities. So that more explains it. Could be. No. So well, here's the interesting thing. When you take a look at U.S. states, a lot you can explain a lot of migration patterns just by geography of people tend to go into the border states, especially from Latin America, plus, of course, New York, which is which is sort of a special case and, and Florida. So once you re realize that there is this geographic pattern, it really doesn't seem like it's probably not, at least in the United States, it's not actually that much based upon they go to places that are more accepting. They go to places that are just more convenient and accessible. 
And then uh, you know, what I did do once is I got data on the way that people feel about immigrants in different U.S. states. And then I said, okay, well, I didn't actually have data on what foreigners versus natives thought, but I said, okay, let's just assume that 100% of all foreigners are pro-immigration and then subtract them out from the population and then see what happens. And you still get the result that the areas that have the most immigrants are the most pro-immigration, uh, which also fits with another result that you get out of at least U.S. public opinion, which is that if you ask people about immigration for the U.S. versus immigration in their area, people around the country are, are much more positive about immigration in their area where they actually look around and see what's going on versus immigration for the country, which is really just based upon theory and media stories. So again, I think actually the story that exposure to immigrants, in fact, really does cause people to reduce their level of fear and see good things. I think that actually is probably true. My other view is actually that the main problem with people like Trump is precisely their immigration policy. <laughs> There's just the bad manners, but specifically on that one policy. Now, the idea that we would have actually gotten better, you know, more immigration in the long run if we had just been more cautious and then this would have avoided Trump. It's logically possible. But again, I think this is, this is more of a story that people tell after the fact. I mean, the, the way that I put it, put it is this. Other than immigration, I don't know of any other issue where many people have the view we need to be cautious in our demands and not ask for too much for fear that there'll be a backlash and then we'll get even less. It's very unusual view. Right now, it could just be that people are delusional on all other issues, but I think it's really more of a normal strategic thinking, which is we ask for as much as we can get, and then we probably won't get it. But by asking for more, we get something intermediate, and let's just push as hard as we can and push our luck and see what happens. That's what people for every other policy do. So I don't see why immigration really would be perceived as being so different. I mean, honestly, my view is that, you know, the big difference, uh, you know, public opinion on immigration policies, people don't like immigration. They really don't like it. It's very strong. It's a very high priority. On the other hand, people are sympathetic. It's a low priority for them. So you can go and say, should we have more? And they'll say yes, but then say, like, give them a list of 20 issues. What's your priority? And immigration usually comes down very low. So, I mean, I think the real story, honestly, is that the reason why people are so open about this backlash theory is that they didn't care about immigration that much to begin with. And so even fairly minor things are enough to go and say, well, I'm going to rethink this. Think about this. What does it take to get a typical left-wing person to rethink their views on redistribution? That would be like very hard even to imagine what that would be. It'd be like half the country quits working because they're getting welfare. And then maybe we've gone too far, perhaps, perhaps. On the other hand, what does it take to get the typical left-wing person to rethink their views on immigration? It's like a couple terrorist attacks. That's all it takes. Even though as a good, effective altruist, you know, well, these terrorist attacks, it's tragic, it's sad, it gets a lot of publicity, but the total loss of life is extremely small compared to the enormous gains that receive no media attention. What's the best piece of evidence that you could put forward uh, for this backlash concern? I mean, honestly, like in terms of the question of what are the best examples of immigration going really badly, that's quite a bit easier. So that's where I would say that, so the two cases that I know best would be Palestinian immigration into Jordan and subsequently into Lebanon. So this is, you know, this is one where, yes, so like it really is true that Palestinian immigration in, uh, into Jordan almost caused a civil war. And then when they were expelled in Lebanon, it did cause a civil war. But it's also one where, you know, again, like, just to be clear, like, I, I'm not someone who, like, who is a defender of Israel or anything like that. You know, when people say, do support a government, no, I don't support them. I watch them with great skepticism because they're <laughs> like, you should always be expecting them to do terrible things, especially to outgroups. But anyway, these are two cases where I think it really is quite fair to go and say immigration led to a very large, dangerous political disruptions of the receiving countries. But notice how weird these cases are. First of all, these are cases where you have a very large number of immigrants to the point where they actually are a large percentage of the population that's taking them. But secondly, also where the new arrivals are you know, quite homogeneous within themselves and have some very unusual thing they're interested in doing, namely taking over the government and starting war with Israel. 
my view is often often that look, even very high levels of immigration are fine as long as you're as you're drawing from a diverse range of countries. If you let in 300 million Mandarin speaking Chinese in the U.S., at minimum, I think that it's quite likely English is not going to be remain the main language of the U.S. But you let in 300 million people from around the world, English will stay the the main language because it will be the lingua franca, and that of course that's just one form of culture, but it's one that we measure best and where we have a pretty good idea about how it works. And, you know, I would say you could let in 300 million people from a lot of different countries and their kids really would assimilate very highly to the U.S. culture as we now have it. Okay, uh, let's move on and talk about uh, having kids, which at my ra- uh, age is, uh, is all the rage. <laughs> oh, really? Friends. Good, good. You know, we need, we, we let, we let Wiblins blanket the earth. That's my <laughs> motto. We need lots of Wiblins. I suppose my friends probably won't be able to produce lots of wibblins, but <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see, see whether I do. As a result of uh, all kind of all of that interest in, in having kids among people in the, in the, in the mid-30s, I've met a lot of people who have been pretty influenced by your book, as Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. And I would imagine that across most people in the world, most people are just very skeptical of the, of the claims that you're making, or at least the claims you're making about parental effects on children. But I'm actually worried that in my social networks, people might have been kind of too influenced by perhaps an oversimplified version of, of what you had to say in the book. First off, yeah, can you briefly outline the evidence which convinced you that people overstate impact that parental behavior has on their kids? Absolutely. So there's basically two kinds of research. There are twin studies and there are adoption studies. The adoption studies are really easy to explain. The whole idea of adoption is that you create families where they share the same kind of upbringing as other families, but they don't have the same genetic relatedness. In fact, they've got none in the very best adoption studies. You're just randomly assigning Korean war orphans to American families, for example. So this is one where you can get a really good causal estimate how much difference does it make to grow up in one kind of family versus another kind of family. What the research on this says is that for a very wide range of outcomes, you really see either no effect or very small effects. Now, the twin research is a little bit harder to understand. It's not quite as transparent, but the principle is very similar. It just says, look, we've got two kinds of twins. We've got identical twins and we've got fraternal twins, right? Identical twins share 100% of their genes. Fraternal twins are no more related than ordinary siblings, 50% of their genes. So what we can do, this research says, is we can go and take a look at twins that have all been raised by their biological families. So it's important to understand most twin studies are not separated twin studies. Basically, the separated twin study combines an adoption study with a twin study. It's two experiments simultaneously. We can talk about those too, but most twin studies don't do that. Most twin studies just say, let's look at the similarity in traits between identical twins and fraternal twins, and then attribute that extra surplus similarity to the 50% of extra genetic similarity. From there, we can go and do some further math to see how much room is left for parenting to actually matter or for family up- or for what we call family environment more broadly to matter. And that research, too, winds up coming up with either uh, you know, for a wide range of traits for either no effect of parenting or just traits or, or levels of effects of parenting that are much smaller than what people intuitively would expect. So let, let's see, just to understand what's going on here better. So I was very influenced by an earlier book by uh, Judith Harris called The Nurture Assumption. That book, though, focused very heavily on personality. And she made the point of there's very little sign that parents have much effect on their kids' personalities. Now, that was one where my reaction was, well, wait a second. What kind of a horrible controlling parent says, hey, I'm going to turn you into a certain personality type? That would seem like a very odd thing for a parent to want to do. So I thought a very good response to her book would be to say, well, we don't see much effect of parenting on personality because parents aren't trying to affect personality. That's not what parenting is about. What I did in my book is I said, let's look at this from a different way. Let's start off with a list of the kinds of traits that almost every parent will admit they are consciously trying to improve. And then let's track down the twin and adoption research that is relevant to those traits. So what I did there is I made this list of what I call, I made what I call the parental wish list. 
in consultation with a lot of other people and I asked anything else that I'm missing. So in there, I said, look, here are things that almost all parents are trying to affect. Health. You know, you want your kid to be healthy. Intelligence. You want your kid to be smart, happy. You want your kid to be happy. Success, uh, by which I mean the stuff you brag about to your friends. You know, high income, good job, higher education, not in jail. You know, my brag, my kid's not in jail. You know, but like, you know, the stuff you're ashamed of, my kid is in jail. Then I talked about character, and I said, these are the subset of personality traits that people really are trying to instill, like kindness or work ethic, and in particular, ones that almost everyone agrees are good. Then I had a set one on values. These are things that people try to instill, but they're controversial, like religion or religious views, political views. And then finally, the last one was appreciation, the quality of the relationship between parent and child. So I started off with this list. These are things the parents want to do. And then I said, let's look at all of the relevant twin adoption research here. And then I wound up saying, you know, it looks like Harris's conclusion was quite correct. And we just really see very little effect of family environments, is what researchers would call it, on a, in particular adult outcomes. Because it's one thing to go and see, for example, that if the parents of a kid go to church, the kid goes to church too. That's kind of trivial. The real question is, what if you are come from atheist genetic stock, but you're adopted by fundamentalist Christians? Are you still going to church when you're 30? And that's where the research on this says, at least to a far lower extent than the biological children in that conservative religious family would. Yeah. One important caveat is that how you treat your children does have a big influence on how they remember you and whether they like yeah, you. Yeah. So there's basically two big outliers in this data, which I should emphasize all comes from the first world. So we're, we're there, there's basically no research on what happens when you send an American to grow up in Haiti. Right. It just isn't done. So important to remember, we're not talking about that. We're talking about moving within the kinds of families that appear in data sets in the first world. So for example, it also would not apply to a kid living out in the middle of a mountaintop in a cabin that's off the grid, like, you know, if that, if that were ever happened. So that's not just including the data. You have to be at least responsive enough to be participate in a survey. All right. That's a pretty low bar in first world countries. But anyway, so the, the key exceptions there were, so the biggest ones are actually parents do seem to have a large effect on what political party you say you belong to and what religion you say you believe in. But not whether you go to church and not what policy views you actually have, right? Yeah, but much weaker effects for your issue views, your religious views, your church attendance, your voting behavior. So basically, your parents have this very large effect on a very superficial trait, but much less on deeper facets of your political identity or your political views or your religious views. And then I say the most meaningful one is for the quality of the parental relationship. Uh, you know, like the effect is, is medium, but... As a parent, I'll say that, you know, to know that if you treat your kids kindly, they'll probably think of you as a kind person. If you're mean to them, they'll think of you as a mean person. You know, to me, these, these are very meaningful, even though it is true that, the, and here there actually is a real separated twin study on this, if I recall correctly, that there is a certain just kind of very forgiving person and your parent can actually be really mean. And you say, no, 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 they really mean well. So there's still a genetic component. Some people just tend to have rose-colored glasses when they look at their parents, but it's rare to have like full tint where whatever happens, you think that they're super nice. So that's, that's where we pick that up. So as you said, a kind of a general challenge with many of these studies is that the families involved tend to be more conscientious and educated and I imagine wealthy than average. And if a parenting style or parental behavior isn't applied to the kids in the sample, if, if, it's, if no one's doing it in any of these experiments, then we can't use those studies to say that it doesn't do harm or that it does good simply because that, I mean, it hasn't been analyzed whatsoever. Do you have a good sense of how broadly these studies range in terms of the parenting quality and behavior of the, of the participants? Yeah. So the twin studies, I would say, have almost the entire range of the population. All you need is to be recorded in a twin registry and be willing to go and answer some questions when you get pastured. Okay. How do they recruit people? Well, so the United States, you know, like, like, so there are birth records that researchers will use. And then some states, I think like Virginia, Minnesota actually had 
dedicated state-level projects where they're keeping track. And then you know, a lot of these studies are based in Scandinavia, where they have even higher quality national registries, so they know exactly whether they're twins and where you are and what's going on with you. The adoption studies there, in modern times, they, you're right that people that adopt kids are selected to be higher quality by a lot of measures, but there are earlier adoption studies that are quite a bit less selective. So one of my very favorite, favorite ones, uh, Bruce Sasserdote has a paper on Korean war orphans that got adopted by American families. And for that one, if I remember correctly... You only needed to be 25% above the poverty line to participate. So quite expansive. It does mean that you have to be someone that wanted to have a kid, right? If you, if you just said, like, I hate kids, I would never want to have a kid, then you're not adopting orphans. Where on the other hand, of course, twin studies, you, know, you can get accidentally pregnant with twins just like anybody else. So they're in there. The real case where these results don't apply. So in selfish reason to have more, uh, have more kids, I just, I just had some points about agnosticism saying we can't assume this would apply to more extreme changes like going from the first world to, or the, to the third or really from the third world to the first. When I was doing open borders, I actually did track down research on international adoption. And there I was able to confirm what I think almost any reasonable person would think, which is that the difference of going from, say, growing up in Ethiopia to Sweden is actually large and it's lasting. You can see this very clearly on physical traits like height and weight and skull circumference. And then you can also see it on tests in adulthood of intelligence as well as academic performance. Yeah. Poverty is bad. <laughs> or extreme, yeah, extreme poverty, like, especially like global level poverty. Extreme, is, yeah. extreme poverty. And actually what's striking is that I, you know, I, I read a bunch of these papers on, tra on transnational adoption and the tone of the papers is very pessimistic and negative because they keep comparing transnational adoptees to the average person in the receiving country. So they keep going and comparing, say, the Ethiopian Swedes to native-born Swedes, right? And then they say, hey, the Ethiopian Swedes weren't as successful in school, their, their test scores are lower, so this has been a big failure. But they're maybe not considering the correct counterfactual there. Yeah, so, so what I did is I say, let's assume that those international adoptees, counterfactual would have been just to be the average person in their home country, which I say is optimistic because they're coming from orphanages and things like that. But anyway, even on, you know, the, the, basically assuming they would have been average is conservative. And what I show is that that's enough to go and wipe out like 40% of the differences in intelligence, similar in terms of measures of academic performance. So in any, like, like, you know, probably more realistically, probably it's, it, it's knocking out, you know, 60% or 70%. Now, this is something I didn't do original research. I just repurposed existing research to answer a different question. Uh, but, you know, like out of all of the stuff that I've ever posted in my blog is in terms of like new yet unpublishable empirical work. <laughs> I am, I probably am proudest of repurposing this work on transracial adoption to get a measure of how bad it is to grow up in the third world in terms of the environmental effects. Yeah. And it is bad. Okay. So in terms of my friends who are going to have kids and kind of advising them, it seems like the best evidence in terms of the breadth of the parenting is this research that compares identical twins with fraternal twins, whereas you can basically just use that to figure out, well, what was the effect of the extra plus 50% genetic uh, content in common? I guess you were saying that covers a pretty broad range of parenting quality, but I guess there must be some filtering out of the bottom, perhaps, for people who like just refuse to register, refuse to get back to the surveys and so on. But the response rate is reasonably high. So we're talking about like two thirds, three quarters of Honestly, the- Honestly, I don't remember. Like in Scandinavia, often this is just based on administrative data. So then they might be able to, to get like 95% participation. In the US, US doesn't get 95% compliance on anything, really. So I honestly don't remember how good compliance would be on US level surveys. Um, so that's, that's the honest answer. What would be examples of parenting practices for which you can't say that this twin research shows that it's probably fine? 
I mean, honestly, the main thing to understand is that these are all what, what social scientists call reduced forms. We aren't really directly measuring anything that parents do. We're just saying if you grow up in this home versus that home, what's the difference? It is possible that there are some p- things that parents do that are extremely potent, but they come up so rarely that we just miss it in this work and we just have trouble identifying what's really going on. Or maybe different different parents could have some behaviors that are extremely good and some behaviors that are extremely bad and they kind of cancel out on average. <laughs> Logically speaking, that's possible. So yeah, it might be that the reason why it doesn't seem to be that great to go over the really rich home is that they give you a lot of training and how to make money, but they don't give you enough love and then those things balance out and then you don't see the effect. It's possible, but it seems like a big just-so story. Yeah. We should also say that uh, although we were saying that the uh, the effect of parents on many of these outcomes was like really surprisingly low, it wasn't actually zero. So there's still room to say there's like things that some parents did that was better than others that, that influenced these outcomes. Do we have any narrative evidence for what the worst parents in the study are doing? It seems like that would be kind of an interesting thing to go and check. Usually this kind of research is the kind of thing where you download a bunch of data and then you <laughs> go and, and, do, and do statistics on it. There is a great book called Entwined Lies by Nancy Siegel, where she really spends a lot of time interviewing twins and getting to know them, finding and talking to famous twins and just interesting, thought-provoking, but not so famous twins. She found out that the president of Princeton was a twin. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I have a fraternal twin who's also the president of a university, which was McGill, if I remember correctly. Then she said, huh, that's surprising. Would you mind if I went and got your spit or blood or whatever it was and double-checked your twin type? And it turned out those two brothers were identical the whole time. And even though they both ended up as university presidents, they said, oh, we're just fraternal twins. No big surprise here. And then she sort of did a whole reconstruction of their biographies where she said, I think she went to talk to the family and it's like, well, the, well, everybody said, well, one was the athlete and one was the scholar. Then she delved deeply and says, no, that's not what it was at all. Like they were both that great athletes. They're both great scholars, but one was the football player. One was the track star. And in America, we think of the football player as more of an athlete than a track star. If a person in the audience though, remembers that their parents berated them about something or other, you know, say their weight or like any other thing that like parents can be like really annoyed about with kids. So they did this throughout their childhood and now they're older and they have a lot of anxiety about this thing that their parents were constantly like giving them shit about. They've like got a complex about it. How likely should they think it is that their parents kind of caused that outcome through their behavior? Great question, Rob. One way to interpret the evidence is that there just isn't an effect. Another one is that there are similar probabilities of having the desired effect or directly the opposite of the desired effect. So either you nag your kids into academic success and they become successes or you nag them into academic success and they hate school and drop out and defy you. In terms of what you should do as a parent, if you know this is true, then it's really pretty similar to I don't have an effect. In both cases like, hmm, either it doesn't matter or I'm equally likely to cause what I want or the exact opposite. Those are all cases where it makes sense to avoid action. I guess that's interesting because although, yeah, that's kind of true for the parent in a sense. Um, although I suppose you could have a thing where like both the effect and the opposite of it are worse than like some middle ground. But the interesting thing is that then for the child, it's like, even though in expectation, the effect was neutral, it could still be the case that they caused this thing. It's just that like, there's a bunch of people who like rebelled against it and it had the opposite effect. Yes. That's, so that's totally possible. Although honestly, I think that a much better way of thinking about these things normally is in terms of personality psychology and some people have high neuroticism and others have low neuroticism. Some are genetically very high in happiness. Some are genetically low in happiness. These are actually different things. Uh, Like one big result in personality psychology is that positive and negative affect have actually a quite low correlation. 
You have people who have lots of highs and lots of lows. People have very little of either. People have a lot of lows, but hardly any highs. People have a lot of highs, very, very, very few lows. I mean, once you appreciate this, what you realize is there are some people who, like, whatever happens to them in life, they would be anxious about whatever happened to them. And there's other people that whatever happened to them, they would be finding good things. It is important just to be mindful of the fact that you are in your memory connecting an event to how you feel today doesn't mean that thing really caused that in a meaningful sense. Just think about there's these friends and I, we had such good times and I'm remembering them now and those were such great times. So those friends were crucial for these feelings. And essentially they were, but if suppose you'd grown up in a different town, you probably would have made another group of friends and then you'd be remembering them. Doesn't show that those exact friends were transformative of the kind of person that you are really, although it definitely would seem that way if you weren't very thoughtful in your introspection. Yeah. I mean, I guess the instance where this is strongest is maybe where someone's saying, well, I'm just like a generally neurotic, or I'm, a, I'm an anxious person, or I'm like kind of sad a lot of the time. And my parents are also sad kind of a lot of the time. And then you can say, well, it's like you probably inherited their kind of morose personality. And I guess the case where it seems a little bit more compelling to think that there's some causal story is when it's like quite specific. It's like, you know, your parents like were really annoyed with you about X and you also now happen to be annoyed about X. But I guess you're saying it's kind of mediated to some degree through personality anyway. There's some people in whom that like wouldn't have taken because they just would have rejected what their parents were saying. But maybe you have, you're, you're the kind of person who listens to your parents say that's the personality that you've inherited. This is one that I have encountered. There's people whose parents are hoarders and now they have ultra high anxiety about hoarding and they're throwing things out for fear that they too might become hoarders. That's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, you might say that as a result of their being this way, you now are exactly the opposite of them. And honestly, that is not something that the research would be good at picking out. Yeah. Obviously, they have to measure things and they've got to measure things on lots of people. So doing things like income, education level, it's like personality factors. Like I guess sometimes they're doing the kind of big five surveys and things like that. Like I said, I mean, so like for the health, you've got measures of lifespan, also self-reported health. There's even one or two studies where they got people to go to a doctor's examination, have the doctor go and assess your health. So you have a doctor's assessment of your quality of life or your, or your health level. For the intelligence there, we've got actual intelligence tests normally. For the happiness stuff, that's like standard self-report, how happy are you? For the, like, the education, the income, and the crime stuff, that's where sometimes we have administrative measures, sometimes it's self-reported. The other stuff would almost all be self-reported. Yeah, I don't want to diss this stuff too much, but I guess it, it, it could miss like some like specific channels by which like your parents can change the kind of stuff that you think about on a day-to-day -day basis, potentially, as long as that doesn't like then flow through to these like more measurable outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly the same way that your friend can affect what you're thinking about. You have a conversation with your friend, it would be kind of odd to say, well, maybe I would have been thinking about the, you know, the Rolling Stones at this very minute, uh, even if I didn't have this friend. Yeah. And again, like you know, most of this research is basically trying to back up and look at more of a big picture. Either things that are ultra-specific they're not going to bother to measure, or they're also not going to bother to measure things where it's like too minor, it wouldn't occur to people to be worried about it. So there is that. What do you make of the kind of attachment theory research, which I guess for, for those who haven't heard about it, is kind of this idea that if you have parents who like you can't rely on, then you can often uh, like be quite reluctant to form like close bonds with people uh, as an adult, because maybe you've like, you've kind of learned that you can't trust like other figures, yeah? It seems like that should be picked up in a bunch of different twin and adoption measures. I mean, the obvious one is happiness, right? So it sounds like you got a story where your parents like, like are not loving and then this messes you up for life. So if that was true, we should pick up an environmental effect of happiness, particularly a shared family environment effect of happiness, to be precise, which again, we really just don't see in the data. The better theory is, again, that at least the long run effect is probably you know, like for happiness, maybe even all genetics actually, 
Although, again, that doesn't mean that you don't remember your parents and mean things they did to you. It's just important to remember, well, in any family whatsoever, you're going to have a giant menu of experiences. And if you're the kind of person that dwells on the negative, you're going to have some negative things to dwell on and to ruminate on. On the other hand, if you're a positive person, there's going to be a bunch of happy memories that you're going to latch on to. Right now, again, like I don't say this to make people feel who feel bad feel worse. Not at all. But I, I think there is actually some therapeutic value in realizing, look, I have, a, I have a personality. I'm someone that would naturally tend to be negative about things regardless of what really happened. So first of all, you may, maybe you can let go of a lot of your negativity towards other people and realize probably it has more to do with your way of looking at things than with what actually happened. But second of all, once you realize that you have this issue, it is easier to actually cope and try to make, you know, make yourself be happier when you just realize, look, I'm the kind of person that tends to dwell on negative things and I'm going to try to consciously do less of that. I'm a big fan of a book by uh, Julian Simon called Good Mood. So he was someone who said he had near suicidal depression for many decades, but he was a very successful researcher. Then he said, okay, so I'm going to wrap up all my projects and I'm just going to spend all my time reading, reading research on how to go and solve my problem. And he spent, spent several years doing this, read a lot of like, what, what is it I can do? What's available? What are my options? And in the end, he became a big fan of the Epicurean story that the main cause of unhappiness is unrealistic expectations. And the easiest way to get to uh, fix that is to get your expectations closer to reality and appreciate what you have. And he did say that he like, like did manage to permanently feel a lot better after that as a result of using these techniques. Again, if you think about it, that is exactly the kind of technique that you're not going to use if you sit around blaming other people 30 years ago for messing you up. Yeah. A seeming like internal tension within this research is that it does suggest that kind of your peers that you have when you're growing up or maybe when you're a teenager and like the, the, so, the, so the outside of home environment does have an influence on your outcomes, like potentially quite a significant one. But then wouldn't you think that parents could influence their children's outcome by influencing what school they go to and what peers they meet and things like that? What's the explanation? You are extremely perceptive, Rob. That is the number one flaw <laughs> with Judith Harris's The Nurture Assumption. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like one thing is she says genes are underrated, but then she also just says your know, peers are underrated too. Then you realize, well, wait a second. It seems, it's, you know, so to understand all of this research, suppose, for example, that genetics causes looks and looks cause happiness because people treat good looking people well and not so good looking people poorly. If that is true, this research will say that happiness is genetic. Right, I see. Even if happiness is, in fact, entirely a function of how other people treat you. Right, right, right. Which could never be found in your DNA. You're never going to find DNA for how other people treat you. Rather, what you might find in the DNA is that causes you to have a very symmetric face with high cheekbones, which makes you attractive, which makes other people nice to you, which makes you happy. So that's true for genetics. So, like, this research is totally incapable of distinguishing between a direct effect of genes and an indirect effect of genes. The same is true for family environment. It is totally incapable of distinguishing the effect of having parents that are mean to you from, uh, you know, from parents that move you into a neighborhood where people are mean to you. It is not able to pick that up. You know, like it is totally incapable of saying is the problem that your parents are poor or that poor people live in poor neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods do things. Judith Hare is a very smart woman, but I don't think that she, uh, I think she didn't really quite grasp that anytime the Twitter adoption research finds a small measured effect of family environment, it implicitly also finds a small effect of peers, unless you're willing to say that parentally caused peers don't matter and self-caused peers do. You know, it's like your parents moving you into Beverly Hills, that doesn't do anything, but you going and coincidentally meeting the druggies in Beverly Hills does really matter. This is like a general truth for empirical, or like, like actual empirical research on human society. Like anything's possible, but you have to have- not everything so is possible. To, yeah, not everything is possible. And like for the implausible things, like you really need to have a higher level of evidence in order to take it seriously. Yeah. What's the biggest weakness of all of this research that you would want parents to keep in mind before they really slacked off in a big way? 
Biggest weakness, I would just say, is just remember that this does not mean that you could do actually absolutely anything that's logically possible. It's research about the differences in the outcomes of what parents actually do, and in particular things that a noticeable number of parents actually do, because if there's one weird parent in a data set of 20,000 people, you're just not going to pick up anything about that. So that's the main thing. So what I would say is it doesn't tell you that much about things that are completely outside the observed range. Now, that could be good or bad. For example, in this data, we probably basically have zero Olympic athletes in the training. They're just so rare that there's probably zero such kids. My view, quite actually, my quite strong view is I think that if you do not have ultra-supportive parents, you cannot even be in the Olympics, much less win the Olympics. If your parents are unwilling to wake up at four in the morning to take you to ice skating, you just have, it doesn't matter how much talent you have, how much drive or grit you have, you just can't be an Olympic-level ice skater because you'll remember at the very highest levels of achievement, you basically need to have all the advantages. You've got to have genes. You've got to have good location. You've got to have supportive parents. You've got to have luck. You've got to, you've got to have it all at the very highest level. And empirical research just doesn't do the very, very highest level very often. I mean, there is a little bit on that, but it's just not the main thing that people are focused on. I mean, that's one where I would just say, look, this is such a long shot. I just think that it's cruel to go and push your kid to, to become an Olympic athlete. I'm really puzzled. I mean, honestly, I say like, yeah. I mean, even if I knew my kid, my, if, if I knew my kids would win the gold for sure, would I then be willing to wake up at 5 a.m. for 10 years straight? No. Like, like I mean, like, my, honestly, my answer would be like, which sport is this again? <laughs> is this a sport that matters, like where there's a future in it? <laughs> okay, uh, new, new topic. Can you explain what the self-interested voter hypothesis is in brief? Yes. The self-interested voter hypothesis is the hypothesis that you are able to predict the voting and political opinions of ordinary voters using standard measures of self-interest. And again, as to what self-interest would be, it's not just the tautology of whatever interests the self, which is a really silly way of defining it. It's basically your standard list of material possessions, health, safety, power, that kind of stuff. Yeah, what would be a kind of classic example of a voter acting selfishly or not acting selfishly under the, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, we'll call it the SIVH model? So Ronald Reagan in 1984 had a question that was very famous. He said, look, decide whether to vote to reelect me or not. Just ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? Not is the country better off, not a real more just society, just saying, look at yourself. Are, do you have more stuff than you did four years ago? If yes, then vote yes for Reagan. If no, then vote for Mondale. That would be a very clear-cut example of an appeal to it. Another nice one is in 2012, Mitt Romney gave a speech to donors where he said, well, look, 47% of Americans pay no income tax, which I think is basically true. And he says, and therefore they will always vote for the Democrats, which is completely untrue, actually. There, you know, a very large share of that 47% voted for Romney. So, I mean, it's not just insulting the other side, it's insulting your own people, actually. So why do you think the self-interested voter hypothesis is wrong? Well, so there's the question of why should we not believe in it? And that's where I'll just say there are, there's about 40 years worth of research. And I've also done a fair amount of the research on my own using, you know, so I've gotten my hands dirty in the data, you know, many, many times, um, you know, I've published papers online. So it just says, look, it just is false. Like when you go and try to go and predict what people's political views will be given plausible measures of self-interest, it just doesn't work. Or at least the effects are, are very small. So you might find that there is like a 0.03 correlation between your income and your probability of voting Republican. That would be pretty typical over the period of 1972 to 2010. That's, of course, averaging. Now, actually, it's like I haven't seen the very latest data. But I think it's very likely, actually, that in modern America, actually, richer people are now notably more democratic. I wouldn't be surprised if there was now a correlation more like negative 0.1, actually, between income and or like usually we do logarithm of income and Republican voting. 
So the, you know that so that would be you know just one example of it. But but you know, so that's the question of why you should not believe it, and you should, so you should not believe it because you have to look at the data and see it's it just is at best greatly exaggerated. It's just not a very. It's just one of the if it does predict at all, it predicts very weakly. In terms of what's wrong with the theory, why is it so wrong? So you know what I'll say there is look. What's the difference between giving $10 million to charity and voting for a guy who's going to charge you $10 million more in taxes, figuring you're super rich? Is there a difference at all? Oh, yeah, just a night and day difference. One actually definitely leaves you $10 million poorer, and the other one, there is like a one in a billion, trillion, zillion chance that you wind up tipping the scales in favor of the side that takes $10 million from you. I also like the example, every now and then there's a famous celebrity who will say, if the other side wins, I'm, I'm going to move to Canada or something like that. As far as I know, they never have actually. Now that is actually a pretty serious commitment. It's also one that when people will say it and then not do it because it is a serious commitment. So really what you need to realize is that it is super cheap to vote against your self-interest in politics because you're so unlikely to actually change the outcome unless you are a really important person, of course. Yeah. So as long as you enjoy having a view or expressing a view or voting for some idealistic position at all, then that almost certainly outweighs the actual causal effect that you could ever have on the policy. Right. Which for an EA, on the one hand, sounds like really great news because we don't have to overcome human self-interest to get people to vote for better policies. Yeah. On the other hand, on the it other also- hand, it can cause people to do crazy shit. <laughs> yes, yes. That's the other problem is people might, honestly, like I think politics would be much better if everyone just voted for their own narrow material self-interest. If that happened, there'd basically be no war on earth. There'd be no bizarre social experiments where you go and say, let's take everybody's farms away from them, see what happens. I've seen the most extreme example of this recently, which is people saying the Russians are committing all these atrocities in Ukraine. We should absolutely impose a new new fly zone. And who cares if it creates a 10% risk of nuclear apocalypse? I'm like, I'm really glad that you're not writing this policy. Yeah, that might even be bad for Ukrainians, possibly. <laughs> oh, it almost certainly is, yeah. I am being facetious, Rob. Okay, I, right. I, I, <laughs> I thought that over, over the UK, you were used to that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, my bad. <laughs> yes, I, well, it, that actually only occurred to me this afternoon when I was thinking, wait, but this is even worse for the people. Anyway... <laughs> But it's better for their souls. Just remember that. Look, if there's one thing that we've learned for sure, it's that it's better to die on your feet than live on your knees, right? Never mind that everybody, like everyone goes through life on their knees. That's reality. To people who advocate for the self-interested voter hypothesis explaining a bunch of voter behavior or people's political views, do they have a leg to stand on in your view? No. Uh, they do not have a leg to stand on my view, in particular because it is so unusual for them to be willing to just retreat to the reasonable position of there's a little bit of evidence in certain cases. People who have this view tend to have it very strongly. The best thing to an exception, I would say, is Andrew Gelman, who does has this very good book, Rich State, Poor State, Red State, Blue State, which if you read the book, you might get the sense that he is saying that self-interest is very important in politics. But here's the thing is that he was writing relative to a political science literature that is so dismissive that you can be quite revisionist while still being very mild in your actual absolute position. So that's where I would say that he stands actually. So he does have this view, which I think is true, that if you break it down by state, what you'll see is that within individual states, a more strongly positive correlation between income and Republican voting that you see at the national level. And then he has a whole complicated story about regional identity and so forth, but I'll also say, but then race drives some of this. It's a complex story where self-interest plays not even second fiddle, like fourth fiddle is a good way of describing it. Again, the dogmatic people will basically just redefine everything to be self-interest. That's the final retreat is if it interests the self, then it's self-interest. And then you equivocate and half the time talk as if it's substantive, half it's technology. Hope people just aren't paying attention to what you're doing. Bait and switch, man. <laughs> I've heard of that. So I, I didn't just bring this up because it's interesting. I bring it up because I actually think this might be really important and something that I am constantly messing up. So just a couple of episodes ago, you know, I did this interview with Matthew Iglesias and we were talking about, you know, how do you interpret polling to make sense of like what policy proposals might actually be feasible uh, with the electorate? 
And both of us were saying something like carbon tax would be really hard to get up because once people realize that it's increasing gas prices, once people realize that it's like lowering the quality or that, you know, the material standard of living because they've got to pay more for stuff, then they're probably not going to like it. They'll like oppose it. Uh, and like once they've got skin in the game, then they're going to be against it. But it sounds like on your view, no, actually like a carbon tax, even if it does raise costs of people could get up because SIVH is uh, mistaken. Yeah. So I say, you know, self-interest is not the problem. The problem is more along the lines of, look, I think this is bad for our society. You know, again, like, like people think more in terms of, oh, this could be really bad for our economy. So when someone hears that, economists tend to hear it as, oh, I don't feel like paying more for gas, rather than I don't like, like the idea of people in our society paying more for gas, which is a very different thing indeed. You know, there'll be advertising campaigns saying this is going to increase the price of gas. And people are then against this, not because they don't want to pay more for gas themselves, but because they're worried about their fellow people in their state having to pay more for gas. At least in the United States, probably most modern countries, it's the country that's the main thing that people have in mind. Or they say, look, this is going to be really bad for the economy. Meaning, again, I, like, jobs I, 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 yes, yes, you know, jobs. So again, it's always so tempting to hear this as thinly veiled self-interest. And yet when we go and try to scratch the surface, we find, no, it's not thinly veiled self-interest. It's much harder core than that. There is a long tradition of doing research where you say, well, what predicts uh, voting out the incumbents? The national unemployment rate or whether you personally are unemployed? And yet really is the national unemployment rate that is the predictive. Your personal events, people do not seem to be really swaying the events that much. And there's time you say, well, people take their own situation as indicative of the overall levels. And yet when you get more specific there, it says, no, that doesn't seem like it's really going on. Really, what I would say is that if you frame something as purely a cost, then people aren't going to like it. If you say, like, this is what we need to do in order to go and have a better life, do it for the children. That is one of the most successful pleas in politics. Of course, you can weaponize this, and it usually is weaponized for horrible stuff. Uh, let's go and make every kid wear a mask for the children. Sully their childhood for the children. You, you find it hard to believe that people will go and do stuff that is really unpleasant, and especially will politically support stuff that's really unpleasant for them personally, for the sake of society. Just look at what happened during COVID, and I think you really can see it all over. Like, look, we have to do this for our society. It was quite amazing. From one point of view, it's quite inspiring, but I guess you're saying it, it, it could also be, also be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, it's so easy to weaponize this stuff. So is, on the one hand, there's the optimist saying, oh, yeah, well, people will do great stuff if we can just explain it to them the right way. Yeah, people also do terrible stuff if you explain it to them in the right way. So what's an implication of the self-interested voter hypothesis being mostly misguided that people like me probably haven't internalized? It seems like this should just like radically change how I try to persuade people of policy issues, like which policies I think are viable. Like, I feel like if I really internalize this, it would be a big deal. Right. So probably the least obvious thing is that a lot of the evidence that seems to be confirming your view is, if you think about it more closely, evidence of group identity rather than self-interest. For example, we do see a lot of race-based voting, a lot of ethnicity-based voting, gender-based voting. And then it's always so tempting to say, ah, people of this race vote this way because these policies are good for them individually. But then again, you take a closer look and you see, no, even the members of that race that are losing from the policy still support it because they identify with a certain race. You know, like my parents are from Los Angeles. The time of the last war between Israel and Lebanon, you just go around LA and you'll see a whole bunch of Israeli flags flying. And then you go to other neighborhoods and you see a bunch of Lebanese flags flying. It's like, like what difference does it make to them? They're in Los Angeles. Is it just a flag? I mean, I think it's pretty likely if you knock on their door and see the flag, you say, I noticed you're flying an Israeli flag. I'd want to argue about this. I think it's quite likely first that you could get into the argument, actually. They're like, what do you mean you want to argue about it? Is it because you hate Jews? Like, no, no. You're like, oh, and then like, pretty soon you're off and running. It's, it's like, well, you're arguing with a total stranger on your front lawn over a flag you put out for something happened 10,000 miles away. What in the world's going on? And it's like, I am Jewish. I care about fellow Jews. I am Lebanese. I care about fellow Lebanese. And also in countries that have more of a class identity, again, this is where I think you're most likely to mistake 
group interest for self-interest. The stereotype is we all think we're middle class. We don't have much of a class identity. But in the UK or even more so in France, people do have a real sense of I'm working class. I'm not bourgeois. I'm working class. Right. And this is where the obvious thing to do would be to say, well, suppose that someone from a working class background becomes middle class in terms of their actual objective numbers. Right. Do they suddenly have a transformation and start thinking just like other people in the middle class or do they actually retain the political and cultural identity of their original neighborhood? And this group identity stuff says, yeah, probably they're going to retain that that group identity. Religion is, of course, another big group identity that people have. So that's probably the the easiest way to get on the wrong track, just not ask enough questions and and to jump the gun and say, oh, they're talking about their self-interest rather than realizing, no, probably it's, it's their group identity that's motivating them. Right, right, right. Yeah, I'll stick up a link to an interview on Econ Talk uh, with with the author of a book called Neighborhood Defenders, which basically is a very like detailed ethnographic evidence that people oppose constructing new houses in their neighborhood because they think it's good for the neighborhood, like mostly out of concern for the group that they're a part of, where the, the community that they identify with, rather than any interest in like even potentially like interest in their well, like how they would like the neighborhood to be personally. Let's push on briefly to philosophy. A curious thing is that there's lots of like empirical economicsy things where I'm inclined to agree mostly on on that stuff, even though I'm usually not as extreme as you. But on most philosophical puzzles that come up in our social circles, we're just like completely on opposite ends. So I think eating meat and otherwise having non-human animals is really wrong. You disagree. I think a teletransporter that recreates you somewhere else and destroys the original copy of your body. I think that it doesn't kill you. You think that it does. You think people have real free will. I don't. I lean towards utilitarianism. You lean towards libertarianism. I think we probably disagree on the nature of aesthetics, probably disagree on the nature of personal identity. So many of these issues seem like pretty independent. On their base. Do you have a theory for why opinions about so many of these philosophical issues seem to split people up in kind of consistent ways? Yes, I do. Directly, the big influence on me has been philosopher Michael Humer, although he turned me on to the Scottish philosophers of common sense, like Thomas Reed, who I've also read very extensively. And they have a way of doing philosophy that says, look, you've got to go and start with premises that would seem plausible to almost anyone and then reason from there. And if you're going to go and unseat something that seems pretty obvious to most people, you got to find something even more obvious than that, or else all that you've done is create a reductio ad absurdum, right? So this says, look, you start with a premise and it ends with something really weird. This is not a reason to believe something really weird. It's a reason to go and reject the starting point. That's the basic logic of the contrapositive. So anyway, so my algorithm for dealing with any philosophical question is to say, all right, what is the simplest, most naive common sense position? And is there anything wrong with it? And if there is, what is the smallest deviation we can do from that very basic common sense position? What are the most minor changes that we need to do? Well, I will say this is one where, in a sense, I don't understand what other people are doing because, I mean, I, there, there is the view where I say, look, I have a self-referentially certain axiom. This is what you'll see among certain, which I, I'm guessing you don't have, Rob. This is Austrian economists who say, look, I have the self-validating axiom that man acts. And you can't even deny that axiom because even to deny it is an action. And now I'm going to deduce everything in the universe from that. And those people say, look, and my self-validating axiom is perfectly certain. And so I don't care what any of these common sense views are. We're going to just use this axiom. It's like using pure reason, yeah. Yeah, as an, as an icebreaker to go and knock down everything else. But if you don't believe in that thing of the self-validating axiom, then I really don't see what Which choice you have. almost no one does, I guess. <laughs> Well, in philosophy, actually, this kind of stuff is, is, is very popular because it does validate their entire existence and allow them to go and <laughs> solve all questions while sitting in an armchair. So you could see the appeal. Remember Descartes. So Descartes got all this stuff that in principle he could have done with his eyes shut and with headphones. So if you go and read the meditations, it's something that in principle you could just close all your senses and think it to yourself and go through these proofs. 
Descartes convinced himself that he had actually proven the validity of observation using God, using cogito ergo sum. And, and like, and you read this, and you're like, wow, this guy's so smart. He like proved Descartes' law of science, and yet he's talked himself into like one leap of logic after another. You don't have anything stronger to go on than perception, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, like, 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 like if I see it, it's real is better than any of these premises that you've got. And yet, not according to him, he thought that he had come up with something so rock solid you could prove the validity of perception using something else. To me, that's just crazy. It's like, look, like, like you got to start somewhere. If I exceed it exists outside of me is... Stronger than any theory you can come up with. Stronger than anything a philosopher's going to come up with anyway. Now, for me, the, you know, this is as close as you can get to an algorithm in philosophy where someone comes with a puzzle and I will say, okay, so what is the, like, the most naive, simple-minded, common-sense view of this? And is there any reason why we shouldn't just believe that? If I see it, it's real. If I feel pain, it's because like I'm actually in pain and there isn't some other weird thing. If I seem to have a personal identity, I have a personal identity. If it's no big deal when I run over a squirrel, it really is no big deal that I ran over a squirrel. So these are all places you know, like, that I start with. And particular for me, there's no overarching general principle that I'm going to apply and say that's the one that I derive everything from. And say there's a lot of set questions that are logically quite separate. And for each of these, you have to go and apply this. Then there is the, it is the concern, well, what if there's a couple things that both seem really obvious and commonsensical that conflict? And that's where you say, okay, well, do they really conflict? Hmm, okay, I guess they do. All the things that you are saying to me are things where, honestly, like I will actually go and do the empirical philosophy thing and say, if you just go and talk to normal people about it, I think they are pretty puzzled by all those views that you said. And again, that doesn't show that you're wrong, but to me, it does show at least this isn't just me going and saying whatever I happen to think eccentrically. I go and say, this is the obvious position. I mean, I am really trying to go and say, I'm going to try to get outside of any particular doctrinal thing or anything controversial. I'm just going to try to get to something that almost any human being throughout human history would have said, yeah, rocks are actually real, man, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that kind of thing, rather than it's a sense datum. For all I know, it could just be a bunch of gray that happens to be there with some other shading that simulates there being an object. Who knows? 50-50. You've hit the nail on the head here. In terms of like being persuasive to people, what you're saying seems right. You want to like start with premises that they agree with uh, like very strongly and then argue from there. But I guess for my purposes of trying to figure out what's true, I kind of have this attitude that, you know, humans evolved to survive. Like that's where lots of our intuitions come from. And our intuition also comes from like everyday experiences that aren't necessarily connected to like deeper, deeper truths about the nature of the universe. And so I don't regard it as surprising when I reason something through and I reach a kind of intuitive conclusion or something that wasn't immediately uh, intuitive to me. I often just trust the reasoning process more than the intuition to which I arrived at the problem with. And I think like that's probably where many philosophers are and like other people who like are more inclined to throw away common sense in favor of like a more considered argument on something. What's wrong with that? Nothing is wrong with that on your list of possibilities. So to say, well, let's see. I, mean, I could be wrong because I had the wrong starting point. I could be wrong because there was an error in the chain of reasoning. Those are all possible. And then again, it could be, again, that evolution has tricked you into something that is just conveniently wrong. Like as an intellectually honest person, you really do have to think about all of these possibilities. It's just that once you have thought about it, then the question is, all right, so how much am I really going to throw away? I'm not going to go and use the knowledge of evolution to go and throw away the real world exists. I mean, like all this evolution comes from from taking you know, from this premise of if I if I see it, it's real. If someone trustworthy says they saw it, that's probably true too. And again, I, and definitely, it doesn't require that you have to have some specific evolutionary reason to be able to understand this very specific thing. Because most of the stuff that we think about, actually, there's no real evolutionary reason for us to be able to understand it. And yet, we it seems like we have evolved some general reasoning capacity. 
and some general judgment, which actually is useful at a sample even. So, so there's that. I guess there's definitely cases where you are willing to throw away like what is the majority like common sense instinctual opinion. Like, so, you know, most people think the state is legitimate in some sense in like coercing people. And you're like much more inclined to reject that, basically. And I imagine there's other cases you could probably think of. Right. So that's where I will say, like, you know, like there is the common sense view and rhetorically, but also intellectually, I'll say, you know, like if this is a view that a lot of people hold, like, you know, maybe it's right. Say, so why would you doubt it? And this is where I can't possibly do better than how my humor does in this problem of political authority, where he just says, all right, well, so suppose there's just two people that uh, meet each other on an island, and one says, I'm the government, and you have to obey me. Like, would that be something that would sound like you had to then go and obey that person? No. It's like, well, what if there were like two people besides yourself, and the two of them voted, and they said, no, okay, now here's the system. You have to do whatever we say. Hmm. No, that doesn't seem like I should have to do whatever they say. And then he really goes through the book, okay, so what would have to happen in order for you to have a duty to obey them? And in particular, you know, the political philosophical question of uh, government legitimacy really hangs on this idea of content independentness to some extent. Hmm. What's that? Like within at least some bounds, you're obliged to do whatever the government says, even if it's not right. Uh, so that's strange. Like if the government says that everybody has to go and wear a mask, this content independence says, look, if the mask were to go and instantly kill you, then fine, you don't have to obey. But just because you've gone and done a lot of research and you say the RCT say this has very low effectiveness, so I don't see it doesn't pass a cost benefit test. So I'm just going to ignore it as long as I can and just only do it when people are watching me and otherwise do whatever I feel like doing. This general view in political philosophy, we say, no, that is not okay. It doesn't matter that you think that it's useless or maybe you're totally right. Let's just stipulate you're totally right. You still have to obey because it's not that big of a deal. You just have to go along with stuff almost all the time. You know, in extreme cases, fine, you can go and disobey the government, but normally it's just not permissible. You have a moral obligation to obey even if it's a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, I guess in almost all philosophical puzzles or paradoxes or arguments, there's something like someone says, like starts with premise A and premise B, and you're like, yeah, those seem kind of plausible. And then they show that those things uh, imply C, which seems really wrong. And then you got to be like, well, what do I feel more confident about? Like uh, that the argument is sound and that A and B are right or that something's gone wrong and C is right. How should one analyze like how reliable as the structure of arguments in general, maybe, is, is kind of an important underlying question. Like, how, how often should we think that, although we can't find an error in the reasoning, it's wrong anyway? Well, of course, you probably know from math that sometimes you have absolute certainty or near that, that there's something, there's an error in your reasoning because you get to zero equals one. And it's like, okay, like, yeah. like, I don't care what else is going on in math. Zero is not one. That, that, so that's one case where sometimes you can just get to something where you say, like, there's no freaking way this could possibly be the right answer. In philosophy, it's quite a bit less often that you get to something that is that cut and dried. But still, like something in Kant saying, like, always act in such a manner that the maximum reaction could become a universal law of nature. And then you end up with, if an axe murder tells you where the children are, you have to tell them the truth. And it's like, mm, yeah. hmm. Doesn't uh, sound good. Yeah, like the first thing, I'm not even sure that was really English. <laughs> 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 this is just like a bunch of weird jargon that no one else on earth ever used before you. And the only people who use this jargon are other people whose whole livelihood depends upon talking about you. So I don't even know what to make of that first premise. And telling axe murders where children are, like, to avoid telling a lie, that seems totally ridiculous. So yeah, there's like, I'm totally going to lie to the axe murderer. And that's a, that seems like a really <laughs> bad argument. So what I would say is a lot of the best correction you get is by going over to empirical psychology and saying things like, well, gee, when people are really emotional about a question, don't rely upon them. And then it's like, do I feel super emotional about this? Yeah, I do feel really emotional about it. So I'm not going to rely upon it. I've got this philosophical argument for what I call pragmatic pacifism. And yet my emotional reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine is terrible. Right. 
Yeah, just outrage. Yeah, I mean, not so much outrage, but but just like sadistic. Like I'll just confess my sins. Like this. Let's bomb them. Yeah. yeah yes. Well, like you realize you're just killing a bunch of totally innocent people, and it's probably not going to work. They were like, conscripted. And it's like yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but I'm angry now. Yeah. So yeah. So so this is stuff where like I mean, part of the reason why I've paid enough attention to self is you know like like I I know I'm far from perfect. I'm a sinner. I have bad emotions. And the only virtue I'll claim for myself is I really do try to be mindful of them and try to get them under control. There's a lot of other stuff that you'll get in empirical psychology. Like one of my very favorite psychological biases that is from Kahneman, but he, but hardly anyone, including him, gives it much publicity is what he calls focusing illusion. The slogan is nothing is as important as you think it is when you are thinking about it. The famous paper about this is are Californians happier? And almost uh, every, almost, okay. yeah, people think, <laughs> oh yeah, they yes. to- those Californians are totally going to be really happy. Because of the weather. <laughs> yes. And, you know, they're not, right? They're, like the data says Californians are not happier. They are happier with their weather. You can ask them that and they say, yeah, they love their weather and that's unusual, but they're not happier overall. There's more to life than weather. Right. This is a general human flaw of when things are on your mind, you just start thinking that it's the most important thing and it's really hard to get that under control. But knowing that this is a tendency really does help people to at least try to realize, well, like, I'm, this is really bothering me right now, but it, but it's not going to bother me forever. Actually, you have a fantastic stoic post on <laughs> how you can go and be happier and overcome negative emotions in life. Uh, it's one of my favorite things you've ever written, Rob. It's great. Oh, fantastic. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll stick up a link to that. It's like various different things that I say to myself in my head when things go wrong in order to try to calm myself down. And it even sometimes works. Yeah, modern day Marcus Aurelius, <laughs> you are. If it kept a blog. It's interesting with the Russia invasion I've like also kind of had these violent impulses, which is like something that I don't so often feel. Um, I've tried like quite hard in order to tamp them down, in order to like make sure that it doesn't cloud my judgment about what I think is actually going to be beneficial. And it has been interesting, I think, viewing people who I normally think of as like quite calm and collected and not inclined to that to that kind of impulse, uh, giving giving in at least temporarily over the last week to uh, to an alternative style of thinking. What helps me is I also just have a very strong aversion to any societal-wide excitement of any yeah. kind. <laughs> if everyone else is like keen on something, you're like, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's just like, like a minimum, I just don't want to hear about what everyone else is excited about. Like, this is really messing up my life. And I have this thing that I wrote called You Will Not Stampede Me, where I just say, look, if everybody else is trying to get me to do something, I'm not going to go along with it. Okay, so just stop trying. Yeah. Okay, in terms of philosophical common sense, let's just like maybe bring it back to that and try to like play it out through a specific case. So you say you think people have what I think is technically called contracausal or maybe like libertarian free will. That is to say that they can really choose to cause two different things in some deep sense. And I think that's a minority view in philosophy, maybe like 10 or 20% of philosophers think that. I think most of them are religious as well. And I think you've said before that this might be the position that your friends think is like the most crazy out of of all of the different positions that you take. So most philosophers think determinism about the physical world or even like randomness in the determination of like of outcomes through quantum physics or whatever, that that precludes contra cause of free will in the way that you envisage it. How does your conception of free will operate as a matter of physics? Great question. So I'll start with saying like, what is the basis of science? It's not math, it's observation. Observation is the absolute foundation of science. It doesn't matter how nice your math is, how elegant it is. If it just directly contradicts what you see with your own eyes, then it's wrong. That, to my mind, is the hardcore science. It's the foundation of everything. When Einstein talks about science is refined common sense, I think that's what he's talking about. So what I'll say is my free will is something that I'm conscious of all the time. I say that I observe it directly. At this very moment, I'm observing it. I'm observing the fact that I could just go and turn off this microphone and abandon this conversation. I'm not going to, but I totally could. It is, within, like, it is absolutely within my power to do it. 
right now. You then go over to physics textbook, and my understanding is it says that that's not possible. Okay. So you're like, which do I believe? And so, yeah, what am I going to believe? Am I going to believe a theory that's been tested on a ton of inanimate objects or my constant observation of my own mind? Something that actually the physics textbook doesn't even seem to mention is that there even are such things as beliefs or thoughts or feelings, right? And I'm going to say, yeah, like that's a book that's, that's extremely useful for a wide range of things, but that book cannot be the full truth. That's my considered judgment. And I say they really are ignoring a pile of evidence. I understand why they're ignoring it because it's so hard to figure out what to do with it. The observation that we only have definite for sure, although it's ironclad, is our own introspection of ourselves. All of our other observations are at least consistent with everyone else being automata. There, there's got to be an extra argument for thinking other people have minds, but that I have my mind. This is where Descartes, I say, was right. And that, like, I can't possibly be wrong about I have thoughts, I have feelings, I experience pain. I'll say the free will isn't quite as ironclad as that, but it's darn close. Yeah, I'm sympathetic because I make a like similar style of argument about consciousness. If I'm like, well, if consciousness isn't in the physics textbooks, like maybe they're missing something because it's like it feels so compelling on a first person basis. And especially the way the physicists are so freaking touchy about this stuff where you go and say, <laughs> like, where is pain in this? It's all implied. Like, How is it implied? You could read this book for a million years and never get the idea that such a thing as pain existed. It's not implied. You're a freaking physicist. You know what implied means. It means you can go and show me the steps. And at the end, it says that answer. And you don't have anything like that in, that, in this book. And you know, yeah. all that it comes down to is you're going to go and pretend that pain is the same thing as having a physical response. And that's not what pain means. If I was a great actor, I could look like I was in pain while not being in pain. I mean, once I had this discussion with, with Alex Tabarek where I said, well, suppose that you had a kid who was totally miserable inside, but it didn't change his behavior in any way. He just kept it to himself his whole life. Would that bother you? And he kind of struggled with it a bit. But as a dad, you can't say, yeah, it doesn't make any difference as long as he pretends to be happy, then that's fine. It really matters how a person feels inside, even if they go through the motions and no one else but them would ever know. But yeah, it matters. Yeah, I agree with that. So I'm sympathetic, but I also think that these things are like actually completely different. In the free will case, let's say that it were the case that instead compatibilism was true and that it was the case that you could turn off the microphone and walk away if you were the kind of person, if your like body was set up such that that is what you wanted to do. How would your first person experience be different if that was the correct like philosophical answer? It seems like your first person experience would be the same, or at least to me, it seems that way. Well, for one thing, there is this experience of doing things you don't want to do which you can tautologically say never really happens. But then to me, that's kind of like saying that all behavior is really self-interested. It seems to me that people do things they don't want to do. Well, I guess I would explain that by saying there's like multiple parts of the brain that have like different interests and are like somewhat conflicting. And sometimes the part of your brain that you're like, that is doing the narrative, like is in conflict with some other part. You know, if someone says the sentence, I really didn't want to give him a ride, but I did it anyway. Right. That's one where I think you understand what the person is saying and say, I did something I didn't want to do. Yeah. I mean, I think if I said that, I would think that I was being colloquial saying like, this was costly and annoying to me, but nonetheless, I did it anyway, because like all things considered, it was like slightly better than not or something. Yeah. I mean, so I'll agree with you that it's not as undeniable as I'm in pain. But you know, basically, you've got the category of really important stuff that isn't in the physics textbook. And that includes both the experience of pain and free will. And then you, and then within that category, you have the stuff that has the highest level of conceivable certainty. Again, we're all saying, look, it is conceivable the physical world doesn't exist. It's not conceivable that when I'm feeling pain, I'm not feeling pain. So that's actually more certain than a rock exists, right? right? right. And then for free will, I'll say, okay, it's not quite like that, but it still does feel like a really strong direct experience. Now, Robin Hanson will just deny having this experience at all. Uh, you know, he will admit to being in pain, but he will just deny having any feeling of ability to choose multiple different things. I'm not a mind reader. Maybe I got free will and he doesn't. 
Although I do think, that, again, like he just has a whole physics ideology where he doesn't want to admit that there is a massive pile of evidence that or a facts that his theory doesn't explain because then it's like, oh man, like I thought everything was all figured out and then it turns out there's a bunch of stuff that we like put our heads in the sand so we didn't have to deal with it. But you will agree that there are a lot of hard scientists will also just say that all this stuff about consciousness itself is also totally reducible and don't be deceived. It's just an illusion. I've, I've heard them say this stuff. Yeah. It was an illusion. Who's yeah. experiencing Illusi- the illusion? <laughs> I think it's called eliminativism or something. Yeah. So yeah, speaking of like other people who have different perception, there's I think a lot of people who kind of meditate and try to like get more introspection, like insight into how their own mind is operating. And then those folks like very often report that their sense of free will gets a lot weaker. And I guess some of them even say there's like it kind of disappears completely when they're paying attention to how their mind operates in that way. Is that in any way persuasive? I guess not. I think it's more of like there's some kinds of meditation that sort of start with that as a premise and they work it in like Buddhism is, you know, Buddha really is David Hume, two millennia change earlier. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of David Hume and Buddha and like, like in meditation coming out of that kind, then you're going to get that, you know, sort of the built-in theory is that you kind of lose your sense of self. But then, you know, there's a whole lot of other kinds of mindfulness that are really telling you to do the opposite. Focus on what is it that I really want? What is it that really matters to me? And I think that kind would give you a deeper sense of free will. I think it's more of a case of, you know, you get out of it what you put into it. Yeah. I think for me, there's like three reasons why... I'm like not convinced of free will. Like three like slightly separate arguments. One is like I don't feel like my internal experience requires free will. That I feel like I could feel I have the perception that I have even if like some other like adjacent theory like compatibilism were correct. Then there's also it doesn't seem to fit into the physics like as we understand it. Yeah, so, so we haven't like discovered some physical thing that makes sense of it. So that's like a bit sus. And then the third thing is I can't come up with some story in which it's like logically coherent. Not only like haven't we discovered the physical law, it seems like it's kind of impossible to like square with like any causal mechanism operating or like even random mechanisms. So the logical challenges of making even sense of what is being said like is also disconcerting. Yeah, I think that last argument explains why 90% of determinists are determinists, actually. It's convenient to go hold up the physics textbook and wave it around and say, I know more physics than you do, you benighted fool. But it's just logically impossible. It can't possibly be. How could it be? Right? And I'll honestly say, like, I see the force of that. But compared to, I just experience this all the time, compared to someone saying, how could it possibly be? It's like, yeah, I don't know. But well, I, I, like, say, we'll figure it out later. The same thing I say about consciousness, I guess. It's hard to see how you'd make much progress on it. Of course, like on any problem, it's hard to see how you make progress when you've been stuck for a while until progress happens. But nevertheless, it's, this is easy just for me to see that 10,000 years will pass and we'll still be having exactly the same arguments that we're having right now. There could be the podcast of, you know, <laughs> of what would it be, of, you know, of, the, of, the, of the year 12,022, 12, and it would be sort of a, re, a rerun of this. So yeah, that, that one of like, it's just not coherent, can't possibly be. I think that's the one that really persuades people. And I understand the force of that. But it's one where I say, look, what is the foundation of science? It's observation. Like I can't just go and, and say like this, this ob- the, all these observations that I'm having all the time are just illusion. And without going and throwing out everything else in science too. And then in terms of squaring it with a physics textbook, yeah, I mean, like I said, that makes sense. But again, it's just like a physics textbook can't be the whole truth is what the answer is. And, the, and then like, like the, like, what's your first argument again? Oh, oh, the one that, like, personally, I don't feel like my first-person experience, like, could only be explained through uh, free will. I agree with that. But then again, your experience of there being physical objects doesn't require physical objects. We also have the whole simulation argument. I don't know where you are in the probability we're all in a simulation. I'm going to profile you at a 5%er. Is that right? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I, I was afraid it's higher than that. Oh, oh, oh it's even higher. <laughs> Maybe okay. that would take a... All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although in that case, then there's all kinds of other weird stuff that you, that you got to be a, like pretty open-minded to, right? Once you get out of the simulation, they might say, hey, guess what? 
we were going and we were affecting, well, they're not really synapses because you're a totally different kind of being than you thought you were, actually. You're, in fact, your gaseous cloud of consciousness. But anyway, that might surprise you, but it turns out Rob Wiblin is actually a gaseous cloud. But secondly, it turns out that we were just stimulating whatever the human analog of a synapse would be to make it impossible for you to understand free will. When in fact, now that you're out of the simulation, you say, duh, of course. You have to be really open-minded if you like about the simulation because it does mean that all the science we know could be totally wrong. I think I'm I'm willing to bite that bullet. I suppose I, I might then ask the question of like, well, why would they be motivated to like trick me about free will specifically? That seems a little bit funny, but yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so who knows? They, they, who knows? they like philosophy and, and just the paradox of the brain of the bat being tricked to be wrong about philosophical things. It's so delightful. Definitely, if it was philosophers running the simulation, that's just the kind of thing they would do. <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it could be a, it could be an experiment. Are there any grants that people should make about this free will thing? Is there any kind of experiment that could be done or line of like research? I suppose people have done the philosophy. You might feel like it's hard to come up with something new there. But uh, is there anything we could do in science to, to explain? I your... wish I had a good answer. I honestly don't ha- don't have a good answer. One that I'm very tempted to, but I, I know there's a stock answer to this. Although still, I think that it's a pretty good thought experiment. And that is, well, look. The physics textbook is right, then you should be able to give me an exact prediction of exactly what I will do, unconditional. Yeah. Right. So you shouldn't have to say, I can only give you a conditional prediction. You should be able to give me an unconditional prediction about whether I'm going to raise my arm in five seconds. In principle. Yes. If I could measure you well enough. Yes, yes. And then, you know, the thought experiment is, all right, so tell me that unconditional prediction and you should be able to go and tell and tell me the prediction in such a way that it incorporates all my reactions and secondary reactions and so on all the way to infinity. And Gal, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the opposite of what you said I'm going to do. All right. So that to me, again, like it's not ironclad. And I know there's a lot of people say, no, no, no feedback loops. And like, it doesn't count, but it's like, it sure seems like if determinism was true, you should be able to give me unconditional predictions about what I'm going to do. And then intuitively, it seems like I should totally not do them. I mean, agreeing, of course, you always have like time travel movies where someone thinks they can change the, pa- change the past, but whatever it is they do, it actually just winds up confirming the past. But that's because it's fiction. And in, like in the real hypothetical, like, you know, you could go and get around that stuff. Or like in the story of Oedipus, it's like, look, you say I'm going to kill my father and marry my mother. Guess what? I'm not going to kill anyone. I'm not going to marry anyone. Prediction falsified. <laughs> right? like, no problem. And, and yet, Corey, you write the story where it all works out and it's a fantastic story we're still telling to this day. It's so well plotted. And yet there's something fishy about that story. Okay, uh, quite a lot of people also wanted us to debate a blog post you wrote about why you're not vegetarian in reaction to the philosopher Michael Humer, uh, his his book Knowledge, Reality and Value, uh, a mostly common sense guide to philosophy. I mean, we're both fans of Humer and and he's a vegan, I think. I've known Mike since I was 18 years old, actually. I met him in Paul Fire Robinson's ancient philosophy class. So I even know his evolution of what he'll eat and what he won't eat over time. It has changed. I don't think he would all mind if I told every detail. Uh, He's not the kind that would take offense at that. Yeah, it seems like you guys are kind of peas in a pod in a way. I was starting to do that, but it turns out you've already allowed humor to respond on your blog about all this, and his reaction was kind of the same as mine. So I think uh, instead we'll just link to those uh, dueling uh, blog posts. And I think the structure of the argument is actually quite similar to stuff that we talked about earlier. So I'll uh, I'll save your time potentially, and people who are cururious can go and check that out. He used to eat fish, but then he stopped. Do you eat fish, Rob? I don't, because of the wild caught aspect. About 10 years ago, humor was still a believer in the theory that fish don't feel any pain, so it's not a problem. Ah, and then I, the I, I I, don't know that he actually knows of any new science. I think it's just the moral risk argument of I'm just not quite confident enough. So I believe in principle, so will, will you eat shellfish? Uh, so there, they're like animals with no nervous system? I eat mussels. Okay, so only, but like, what about like a scallop? Will you eat a scallop? 
Uh, I guess like uh, potentially I would eat a scallop. I, I don't know. I have, to be honest, I'm not like that sufficiently psyched about eating scallops to go and look up their nervous system and stuff like that. But uh, if I were a vegan, like I would be maxing these <laughs> exceptions out to the hilt because I'd be <laughs> starving to death otherwise. Interesting. Okay. I had some great scallops yesterday. So if scallops are morally permissible, like I'd be, I might be eating them like three times a week if that was all I had left. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, um, I'll, I'll take a- You have to get high quality ones. Like low quality ones are, are quite chewy and bad, but- like the uh, I'll, I'll go yeah. and do some do some research on scallop uh, scallop brain <laughs> structure. <laughs> Let's push on and talk about uh, the effective altruism community, which is something you've had a bit of exposure to, and I think like an increasing amount of exposure to over the last couple of years. Yeah, you recently wrote about how you'd had like really positive times uh, dealing with various EA student groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you enjoy about them? Super curious and really eager to go and talk about ideas. And it's well, you know, what's nice about it is a group where it's. Uniform enough in that everyone's interested in ideas, but it's diverse enough where you get a lot, where you hear a lot of different ideas. So you actually learn things and you have a really fun conversation. There's just like 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 a, a positive, cheerful attitude that like in, among every EA group that I've ever encountered. They actually are spreading joy in the world. It's not like the stereotypical people who love humanity in general while hating all particular humans. <laughs> that we, <laughs> so there's that. In a way, like what makes them fun is what would seem to be a fairly high level of hypocrisy of not actually doing that much concrete for the sake of others and just getting together and having a fun party and talk about ideas. I was like, hmm, how did this actually help the world that much? Well, people here had a good time, but it doesn't seem like that was really the best use of the resources. We could have all just worked another hour at our jobs and then collected the money and then donated for malaria nets, and we didn't. But yeah, like I honestly wouldn't want to hang out with the malaria net people because that's not very fun. Interesting. It's an interesting, <laughs> interesting compliment. Um, yeah. Was there anything else? Oh, yes. Actually, so something else that I really like about effective altruism is that the very existence of the movement depends upon my very favorite concept in all psychology, which is social desirability bias, the idea that there's a big gap between what sounds good and what really is good. You know, psychologists use this to go and explain why people go and say things that or what's the right, right way of putting it? Essentially, you know, this is the technical concept to explain why when the truth sounds bad, people lie. And if the lies become sufficiently ubiquitous, then they start to sincerely believe the lie. Why would you have a group called effective altruism? It obviously, it's a pretty thinly veiled insult to all other altruism, basically saying, well, we're the effective ones and you guys are not effective. You're ineffective altruists. And you basically act like you're so good, but actually you're squandering precious resources. Maybe it's better than nothing, but come on, you guys can do a lot better. And then you ask, well, why would there be ineffective altruism? Why would there be people who are putting so much energy into charity that doesn't accomplish very much? And the social desirability explanation is what makes sense. It's, well, some stuff sounds really good, even though it is not, in fact, very good. It just sounds wonderful to support ballet performances for inner city children. It's such a lovely idea. And you can see why people would be moved by it and why they would give millions of dollars for these programs. And the reality of, look, First of all, there's like starving children in the world. So like even if the ballet was great, like how good can ballet possibly be? And second of all, the harsh reality is like hardly any kid in the world is going to like ballet. So you're not going and giving them a great, wonderful, sublime experience. You're like torturing and boring these poor children. And yet people say, oh, no, no, no. At first they might assume that, but then the love of dance will take over and the prancing <laughs> and the pirouettes will win, over, win them over. And like, no, that's like, that is total fantasy. That's not what's going to happen. Just let them play. Yeah. So again, to have a whole group predicated upon this notion of social desirability bias, which I do think is one of the most powerful explanatory concepts that we have in all of social science. Psychologists will sometimes say they're natural science. It's kind of, I don't know, that doesn't sound right to me. But anyway, like whatever the category is, it is one of the most 
powerful concepts we have for understanding individual behavior and for understanding policy. I mean, my view is this is really the biggest problem with policy in democracies, at least, probably dictatorships too, is that there's a lot of policies that are really good, but they just have the optics are bad and people don't want to have everyone yelling at them and throwing tomatoes at them when they go and propose their ideas. So they say something that will get smiles rather than something that will work. I think you and I are both fans of human challenge trials. I'm going to profile you as a hardcore human challenge trial person. All right. <laughs> You're damn right. <laughs> and yet no country on earth did it. I think the UK did. UK has now. First one. Right. But too little too late, right? Day late and a dollar short. Or... Well, I, th- I think it's mostly just setting a precedent for next time. Yes. Although next time I bet it'll be relitigated while people die. I can just go search for all of my old tweets and just tweet them again. <laughs> Save me a lot of effort. I mean, again, this, this is one where I have, uh, like, I actually am planning on writing something about how I would have sold it in a way that I think would sell. I mean, I think, I think wasn't it you that were linking to some public opinion saying it isn't even true that normal people think it's a bad idea? Oh, yeah. Most people think it's totally fine, yeah. Right. But like, I think what, what, what that's missing is that once it be got on the menu, there'd be a whole, all the demagogues would come out of the woodwork. And I think this is something that they can turn public opinion on a di- around on a dime pretty easily, such the people that stuck their necks out in favor of it would still wind up losing out. I uh, could be wrong. And yeah, I, I would definitely say, try it. Just try it. Like, what's the worst that happens to you is you lose your government job where you're doing something that's bad. All right, look. <laughs> <laughs> people hate getting fired so much that they'll just like accomplish nothing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like the safety net for some high status government job is still some other high status job. It's not that bad. So, you know, just like Mike's about your status with Rob Wiblin. It's his opinion that counts, not millions of other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you might be too pessimistic on the human challenge trials. Like the public supports it. In fact, like bioethicists support it. The only people who don't are like the people who do the PR and like legal stuff for organizations that would have to run it. They're the ones who like, you know, crap their pants about it basically because they're worried that something will go wrong. But I think that's like not quite enough to stop it anymore. I saw that piece trying to say that bioethicists were actually in favor. I'm trying to reconcile this with Robin Hansen, you know, like, like, you know, talking with seemingly a lot of bioethicists, and they kept saying, look, the problem is you cannot give informed consent for a new drug, because we, by definition being new, we don't know what it does. And that did seem to actually be a, a position that they held very strongly. It's like, well, can't you just say it's a new drug, so now you've been informed? It's a new, it's a new drug, and we don't know what, exactly what it does. All right, you're informed now. Now do you consent? I said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. It's got to be concrete information, not abstract information. Yeah, I mean, thank God we don't apply this for the rest of life, or no one could ever do anything new. <laughs> and, I, and, and imagine if we specified that sufficiently, like, precisely. You could never write a new book. Right. Well, well, this this is where we have this medical ethics versus all other things. And anything to do with medicine is totally different standard than all other things. No, 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 that's fine. The interesting case is when in psychiatry, you say talking is medicine. And it's like, uh-oh, now I can't talk anymore. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> okay, co- coming back to the student groups. That's a bunch of good stuff about them. Where could they improve, if anywhere? Of course, in terms of actually accomplishing more good, probably it would mean focusing more on actually doing stuff and making more sacrifices. Hanging yeah. out with you less. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, you, again, you might say, no, no, this is like the lost leader. So we have the fun social group and then that gets people excited. And then one out of a thousand of them becomes a billionaire, gives a lot of money. All right, maybe. But that's. I mean, I, th- I think that the main thing is that if people are having fun, then it's like you can potentially recruit like 10x as many people basically compared to a group where everyone is miserable. So, Yeah. Yes, although if you never do it, you know, like eventually there has to be the harvesting period, right? Yeah. So like, I guess you know, based upon, upon the EA groups that I know, I think honestly, there is a still I used to say strong default to whatever is the official left-wing position. Uh, what's great about EAs is you can talk to them. Like, like I've never met an EA where they'll give you the official left-wing orthodoxy and you can't say, but is it though? And, and you know, like no, no EA has ever bitten my head off for doubts. 
I mean, even even on the animal ethics stuff, right? I have the feeling that they are, in fact, take it most seriously. Like, still, I've, it's always been a fun, friendly conversation. It's yeah, that's rare, and like one of the things that I most love is that you can argue about something that the person internally might even find it offensive, but they don't regard that as like a reason to shut you down or be angry in your face. Yeah, right. I think that I would say is I wish that. EA students would be more likely to just say, hmm, as a result of just knowing about the fact that people often like something that actually is bad, maybe I should just start off being quite a bit more agnostic about my political upbringing. And then, well, where do I start from there? And that's what I say, well, you know, like read the Copenhagen consensus, read, read about that stuff. So, you know, like, like I know a lot, a lot of young EAs, like they just assume global warming is the number one problem because that's what in the, in the universe, because that's what they heard in school. And yet almost no one who does cost-benefit analysis with an open mind will say that could possibly be the number one problem. And also, if it is, nuclear power all the way, buddy. <laughs> let's, let's nuke it up. <laughs> I, mean, I think a lot of them would, uh, would, would agree with the nuclear power one anyway. Uh, yeah, so yeah, but like the number of young EAs who are really worried about global warming and, are, and, and just have never really heard anything about good or good about nuclear power, they're young and you hope that they will actually discover this at some point, but... If sort of EA is like your hobby and then the rest of the time you're sociologically among just other very doctrinaire left-wing people, maybe you never will actually hear it. Oh, yeah. I remember what I really wanted to say about EA, which is I've got a slogan. My slogan is EA is what SJ ought to be. (laughs) (laughs) EA is what SJ ought to be. So it's the contrast between two groups, both very idealistic, both want to make the world a better place. But again, the way you make the world a better place is by step one, calming down realizing that you don't know that much about the world and then trying to figure it out and along the way, be nice to other people because maybe they have something to teach you. Even if uh, you know, a lot of what they have to say is wrong, just getting that kind of feedback is very helpful for learning more. You don't want to alienate critics because without critics, you're just stuck in your own echo chamber. Social justice movements is really weak on all those things. I mean, you know, like you got the intentions, but in terms of having the right mindset for actually making the world a better place, you know, SJ has the right mindset for fanatically making the world worse. Over the years, you've made a lot of bets with people about um, yeah, how events are going to turn out. Do you still have a clean sweep on all of those bets that you've made? Are these are public bets? On all public bets, I have 100% success, 23 for 23. How far above expectations do you think you're running given the difficulty of the questions? Are you kind of impressed with yourself? Yeah. No, yeah. Like if you had told me that I'd be 23 for 23 when I started doing this 17 years ago, I would have said, no way, I'll, I'll be like 18 for 23. It was probably about what I think that I, that I would be capable of doing. Of course, I am more motivated to go and try to get people to bet me when they're saying things that I think are ridiculous. Although here's the thing, it's just hard to get those people to bet. So the people that actually bet are usually the, are usually the more reasonable people of the crazy people. And also it's those people on a better day, the people who once the bet comes up, then they tone it down. So they're not as crazy as they sounded when they were just being pundits. Right. But I've definitely done quite a bit better than I thought that I ever would. And, and you know, there's there's a couple of bets that I was pretty sure I was going to lose. And then somehow the universe folded in such a way, you know, suggesting a simulation, actually, that <laughs> simulation were like, I just want to have the experience of being about to lose and then improbably winning. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't, I think my favorite one was that you thought that no country would leave the EU by some date and uh, like the UK voted to leave and then its departure was delayed such that you like won by 30 days. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I won by just a smidge. Again, you know, like it, it was one where I did word it in such a way that I had some insurance because I said, you know, it's got to be a country that currently has a population over 10 million. And I said, they have to officially leave. 
right? Which, and again, there are some people saying I should have paid as soon as the referendum was. And I said, look, uh, you know, a non-binding referendum, advisory referendum is not officially leave. That means that they like, they go and they say they've left like as an official act of government or they're removed from the EU website or something like that. So yeah, but there were a bunch of people saying, just pay up, you've lost. And I say, look, I don't want to pay. I don't, you know, they say you protect your reputation. Like I don't want a reputation for paying up when I, when for being more generous than the terms that I explicitly negotiated for require. Why are you booing? I'm right. Um, <laughs> you've got a fair few bets uh, outstanding. Are, are there any that aren't resolved yet, but that you wouldn't make again today? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I have a three to one odds about the continuation of the climate pause with Joram Bauman, the stand-up economist. I mean, honestly, that was one where I expected to lose. That's why I negotiated for three to one. I was just saying that I thought there's excessive certainty, not that I don't think that it's that warming is likely to continue. But anyway, it looks like the pause basically stopped right about the time that I made the bet. So yeah, totally would not make that bet again. I am a run out the clock person, so I'm not, I'm not planning on admitting defeat until the very end. I could see saying, fine, like you know, the temperature would have to drop 30 degrees in the last year. But I was like, oh, you know, it says it resolves on this date. We'll do it then. That's the time. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, I think maybe uh, we got a lot of audience questions for you, for you Brian, uh, for, for this episode. And I think the most asked one was, uh, what's something that you would like to bet against people in the effective altruism community about? Or at least some people, because obviously people have many wide-ranging views. Let's see. Well, I've already done one huge one, and this is the machines are going to kill us, or at least something terrible to us in the medium term. So I, I, I literally have an end of the world bet with Eliezer Yudkowsky. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, which many people believe cannot be made, but it's super easy. The person who disbelieves in the end of the world just pays the money now. And then if the world does not end, the loser pays back with whatever the odds are. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Yeah. So Eliezer, we actually have a bet. Now, it's, it takes a little effort to understand the bet because... His view is so specific. <laughs> he said, look, I want to bet on there will no longer be any human beings on the surface of the earth on January 1st, 2030. I was willing to give him like, like, like how about like all of human extinction? No, 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 no. There could still be humans in mine shafts. That's okay. But not the surface of the earth. And I'm like, all right, if that's like such a big deal to you, fine. We'll make it surface of the earth, whatever. But yes. So any, anyway, so we have a, we, we have a bet where I gave him... I don't remember the exact odds. I think it might just wait like two to one and I prepaid. So implicitly there's interest. So it's not as good. It's not as good as it seems. But anyway, like he is quite confident in this uh, hostile AI scenario coming to pass and not in like a thousand years, but just January 1st, 2030, all motivated by this FOOM scenario that he's also big on. Everything can seem to be quite stable. Then suddenly, FOOM! Like the AI goes from just being the regular computers that we know and love to being like so intelligent that it's like a god. And again, so I finally met Eliezer in person. I had a bunch of questions for him like, why wouldn't intelligence just like asymptotes like triple human intelligence? Why would it go into infinity? We don't see other stuff in nature going to infinity. Why would intelligence go to infinity? I don't feel like he had a really good answer for that. And then, of course, there's also, look, even if you did have infinite intelligence— I don't believe that even infinite intelligence would be sufficient to convince me to kill myself in the next 10 seconds. I don't think there's any conceivable arrangement of words in the universe that would get me to do it. Basically, this is like the function of time it would take to convince me to kill myself as a function of intelligence. And even when intelligence goes to infinity, the amount of time that it takes to convince me does not go down to 10 seconds, right? Or maybe ever. Right, right. So, so, so anyway, that's one that I already have bet against. And I will say I am kind of stunned at the prevalence of this fear of hostile AI in the effective altruism community. This is one where I would say like 
isn't nuclear war obviously like the thing with it's way more worrisome? Like we know like nuclear weapons exist. We have a pretty good count of how many there are. And we also have a pretty good story about how escalation spirals out of control to result that it doesn't seem like any of the main people would ever have wanted. So put all that together and it seems like we've already got a really bleak scenario that plausibly is far from a rounding error over the, over the span of a century. Maybe we'll get to find out even sooner than that. I'm pretty worried about the nukes too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll say I'm at, like for this month, I'm at like 100 times my base rate for nuclear war. Nuclear war, yeah. Yeah, which is 100 times a low rate, but like still, if you know, humanity survives after something like that to write a history, how will they even explain it? It would be like, like what, the, what the hell was even the issue? Who cared? Like, what's the difference? It will be embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure we'll be turning over our graves with embarrassment. <laughs> oh, no. People in future generations are laughing at us. <laughs> We should do a big section on AI whenever we're next to an interview. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I should like, try to go into all, all of those arguments. I don't exactly have Elias's view, but I'm, like, I'm also worried about the, about the AI stuff. Have some kind of intermediate view. I should say, you have a spreadsheet where you publicly list all of these bets and uh, how they've resolved mm-hmm. and how much it was. Yep. And the, uh, so yep. so people, we'll, we'll stick up a link so people can go and check them all out. Uh, and I think they'll find it interesting. My complete bet wiki, I was delinquent for many years. And finally, it's okay, I'm just going to get it all down. And I, and I did the work to get it all publicly listed. Yeah. What's another thing you might want to bet with some people in EA about? I guess me hypothetically or uh, some other people you've read. Yeah, so I'd still be really happy to do, do a bet on climate change that relates to effects on human living standards. So I still think it's very unlikely that climate change is going to lead to any kind of absolute reduction in human living standards. I think it's plausible that it will lead to a sl- you know, a slowing of growth that otherwise would have happened. But again, the scenario where it actually gets so bad that GDP per capita goes down, I think that seems quite unlikely to me. I guess I, I think the odds of that is like maybe 15%. Yes. 15% for like global GDP to go down overall, that's probably even optimistic because there's a bunch of things that could go wrong. But the narrowly tailored global warming causes it, and then you'd have to specify the bet a little more precisely to- I know, guess I'm saying that the like annual drag of climate change uh, like over some period of time is more than 4% or something like that. Right. Of course, that's always going to be an estimate. And so it's hard, harder to bet on something like that. You could, in principle, say the following regression will have a coefficient smaller than this. Basically, it'll be this model, this data set- and when we run the regression, it will have a sensitivity of GDP with respect to climate change of less than something. Maybe you could make a bet that's like conditional on the temperature going up like more or less. Although I suppose actually, well, part of the issue might be about how much will the temperature change. But if the disagreement is the downstream effects from the temperature change, you could do some bet that's conditional. Yeah. yeah. So it seems to me that like, like real thought leaders in EA, I think, are quite a bit more reasonable in global warming. And you know, yeah, prob- probably Lomborg had, you know, had quite a bit of influence there, I'm, I'm guessing. I think, to be honest, if you just read like mainstream folks, if you if you just like take what's the median opinion, even of the IPCC, then you end up worried, but not like completely freaked out about like the median case is going to be the end of the world. It's more like, well, there's a chance that things could be way worse than we think. That makes sense. But again, among people who are EAs, but are not thought leaders, then I think that they're much more conventional in their worries. This is exciting. I, I bet that there is a listener who could come up with a bet that's like maybe some conditional thing or maybe something about uh, yeah the, the rate of GDP growth uh, and they might be interested in... You know, my new blog is called Bet On It, so I'm, I've am i kind of stuck my neck out as being open open to bets. Every now and then someone will bet me on something like, well, I agree with you. So like, why would I bet you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else? Here's one that does not really go to anything fundamental. This is the one that once we have synthetic meat that the opinion of humanity will be that that meat eaters in the past were just complete savage barbarians like Nazis. And I'll say, no, that is not what people are going to think. There may be like, oh, gee, that's that's really gross. But it's not like, it's not going to be that people will regard people who ate meat as being like, like cannibals or something like that. 
there'll still be animals in this world of synthetic meat and people are not, uh, there's still going to be squirrels who get run over by cars and people are not going to go and regard running over squirrels running over, being like running over a human. So I don't think that the opinion will ever change on mediating to this level that some very staunch vegans will say, look, the only reason people would, uh, don't totally agree with me on this being like an ongoing holocaust is self-interested yes it is just that they're sinners and they don't want to give up their yummy delicious savory <laughs> meat <laughs> yeah that's interesting I'll, I'll have to think about that and see whether i actually disagree because that, that could be fun I, I mean i mean like here's the weird thing is even for stuff that's really horrible people often go and make a bunch of apologies for it like they go and talk to americans about slavery in the south and they'll be like well you have to understand it would have destroyed their whole economy to free the slaves and like even people otherwise are very left-wing and so on and they're like so like if you had someone trapped in your basement slaving for you and they and like you you would lose your house if you didn't go if you freed them you just like keep them there whipping them or something like like how, what kind of defense is that <laughs> yeah you also get funny defenses of colonialism along the same lines uh, although i suppose there i think people like often don't know the history so well what's your new website betonit.blog actually betonit.blog cool 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 Okay, uh, we're almo- almost done. Second last question. Effective altruists tend to lean towards increasing well-being as a top priority, which is something like you care about as well. You're, like we all care about well-being to some degree. But most of us kind of don't mind, for you know, instance, regulating a product or imposing taxes if we think that those things are going to lead to more well-being or more, more, more flourishing in some sense. Now, you don't totally disagree, but you have a different way of weighing up individual autonomy, uh, autonomy versus welfare, which has influenced me quite a bit. Can you explain that? Right. This is, of course, going to require some acceptance of moral intuition. Yeah. All right. All right. So there is a classic thought experiment where you are a surgeon. You have five different patients. Each of them is going to die unless they get a different organ transplant. You can't get the organ transplants anywhere, anywhere else. And then along walks a guy who's got all his organs intact. He has no friends. Nobody knows who he is. No one will ever miss him. And then the question is, would it be ethically permissible or even laudable to go and murder him and then hand his organs out to those five people to save their, their lives. And he said, well, one, killed one person, saved five lives. Five minus one equals four. That's good. Now, again, if you're a hardcore utilitarian, then you will just say yes. And, you know, as long since you crafted the hypothetical to, you know, to make this the answer, then of course, yes, we sh- totally should murder this person. And anything else is just sheer squeamishness driven by our misleading evolutionary heritage. All right. Uh, however, most people who hear the story, even after they hear the evolution and all the other things, say, oh, you can't just like murder that one innocent guy to go and save five people. And then it's like, what if it's a million? All right, if it's a million, then I guess, guess all right, yes. But even five is enough to make people uh, strongly pause. And I think this intuition is very credible. And again, it also works on a smaller scale. Like, is it okay to go and steal a toy from another kid because you'd enjoy the toy more and he won't even know that it was taken? He'll think it was lost rather than stolen. So what's, and you'll never, you'll never get caught. What's the harm? And even there, it's like, look, I have to steal this toy in order to, to like go and like prevent someone from breaking his arm or whatever. All right, fine, I'll steal this toy. But not just the fact that I would just enjoy the toy more than the owner is not a sufficiently good reason to do it. All right. So anyway, this uh, philosophers would call this weak deontology. And it is a way that you can get a lot more definite answers out of the moral universe than you can with regular old utilitarianism. Because the truth is that there are a lot of moral questions where the facts just aren't in that well. Right. And you could just say, hmm, would it really be a bad idea to ban Satanism? Look, we know that we can get by with legal Satanism. It's not the end of the world to have Satanism, but 
On the other hand, you say, well, there's the utility of the Satanists who get to enjoy their special religion and they get to have their club and they get to freak out the squares. But on the other hand, how do the parents of all these people feel? And what about all the religious people who are terrified by Satanists and take it more seriously than it's even meant to be taken? So anyway, it's one where it's like, hmm, I don't know, maybe yeah, probably banning Satanism seems like it passes a simple cost-benefit test. On the other hand, passing like a five to one test where like we're not going to go and start banning religions unless we got a really strong reason to do it, where we've got very solid evidence that we're getting a large benefits over cost. So that's one where I think, in fact, most people resolve a lot of moral questions that way by saying, look, there's some default view and you've got and it isn't just enough to say that benefits exceed cost to go and get me to break the default. You've actually got to show that the benefits are way bigger than the costs. And yes, and this is how I do think about governments going and pointing a gun at someone's head and saying you have to do a certain thing that especially something where it doesn't see, you know, again, it's not like pointing a gun at someone's head and saying, hey, don't murder that guy saying don't be you know, like pointing a gun at someone's head and saying don't hire him for less than $15 an hour. And it's like, is it really that bad to go and like offer to hire someone for, for less than $15 an hour? It doesn't see, it seems like this is a gross overreaction. Right. And even if I didn't have really good evidence that this failed a cost benefit test still, I'd say, look, you should have really good evidence that it greatly exceeds and passes a cost benefit test with flying colors. So, again, I mean, I do this for libertarian stuff. This is also my view on war. So I have a whole bunch of pieces that I've written on pacifism. It just begins with the premise saying, look, modern war is almost never really defensive because modern weapons are just so big that you really are, if not deliberately killing innocent people, at least you're negligently endangering innocent people in a way that you would go to jail for manslaughter if you did it as a private individual. So again, this does not mean so that, that, yeah, it does not mean that war is never permissible under any logically possible circumstances. But I say, look, there's just this presumption saying before you go and do modern warfare, you know, don't be under the illusion that you can just go and kill bad people. Right. So like it's super hard. I mean, Ukraine, it's like, well, it's just an invasion, so it'll be okay. It's like, well, what about the conscripts? Probably a lot of them don't want to be there. And imagine that the war actually goes well for the Ukrainians. What do you think they're going to go over and do in those eastern breakaway provinces or in Crimea? Do you think they're just going to say, all right, if we know anything about military action throughout history, it's like if you have a sudden total surprise success, you don't say, all right, great, now we're done. It's like, hell yeah. All right, let's go and let, let us retake the lands that were conquered by the enemy. And then, yeah, they're going to wind up killing a lot of innocent people probably in those areas. So, I mean, you got that. The second premise just is uh, that, in fact, uh, we have very high levels of uncertainty about the effects of war as evidenced by Tetlock's research or just like any actual knowledge of history and what people thought at the time compared to what really happened, right? And just, you know, just how much happenstance there is in history. So it's really hard to actually have justified confidence that a war is going to have really good effects. And again, if it was just a matter of passing a simple cost-benefit test, then you got to say, hmm, that one maybe we can pass it plausibly. But if it's like, gee, you're talking about murdering a bunch of innocent people or negligently killing a bunch of innocent people in order to do this, there's a high bar there. So yeah, that's, that, so that is a, a big part of the way that I think about moral issues. And again, not just for libertarian stuff, but you know, just for something like lying. I would totally lie my, lie my ass off to save the children from the Kantian axe murderer. But the so-called white lie, like, I don't want to do it. Like, like it seems morally wrong to do it unless you got, you got like you're really cornered. The stakes have got to be big. Yeah. And again, especially when you realize there's a lot of ways where you don't really have to do the white lie instead of saying, I'm super happy for you. And that's not true. Just say congratulations, which is neither true nor false, uh, according to all the philosophers of language that I know anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the way 
I kind of conceptualize this, so the way that it affects me is that I think if you're a pluralist about ethics at all and ethical values, so it's like I'm mostly focused on well-being. I think like well-being is the thing that most often varies between different decisions that you can make. However, I also place some value on autonomy and people not using violence and in, in, in order to interfere with and, and, and harm other people, even if they have good intentions. So then like, how does that cash out when we're thinking about a government regulation? Basically, that it, it just raises the bar. If you're going to have a regulation which requires you know, uh, the threat of violence in order to enforce it, as almost all of them do to some extent, you shouldn't just require that the benefits be slightly larger than the costs. It should be that the benefits are like quite a bit larger than the cost. So it's like before we decide to, as you say, make it illegal for two people to make a contract, like shouldn't we require that the benefits be twice as large as the costs in expectation? And that, that's, that's kind of how I conceptualize it. It's just like it's just raising the threshold. I think that having that mindset might well improve people's policy analysis anyway, because they tend to be a bit over optimistic about <laughs> how things are going to go. Oh, yeah, definitely. Although, of course, there are a whole bunch of people who love autonomy who will say, no, no, autonomy requires that we have the regulation to protect the autonomy of the weaker party. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a different concept yeah, than autonomy, yeah, yeah, at least to yeah. me. But <laughs> I would class it under well-being again. But one case in which this actually came up uh, quite a lot was we invented vaccines against COVID. Imagine that it had been possible for like people other than Pfizer or something to make them because they, they have their own like complicated motivations. The official position of basically all governments is that if someone had themselves wanted to manufacture the vaccine and use it on themselves and like give it to their families and sell it to other people in the community who are willing to take this thing up until the point that the FDA approved it or the regulatory agency approved it they would have come with like guns to like physically like restrain you and prevent you and make sure that people couldn't take the vaccines even though they're like fully consenting even though they know and like everything that's that's irrelevant until the bureaucrats approve it can't do it now if that was absolutely necessary, if the benefits of that kind of coercive government regulation were so large, then I would be like open to that. But in my mind, the threshold is reasonably high because of its restriction on people's autonomy to choose what medicine they want to receive and what medicine they don't want to receive. And I just like didn't find the arguments for like the benefits exceeding the cost by a large amount to be sufficiently compelling that I was like <laughs> super keen on those rules. I mean, was anyone even making that argument? I don't think I ever heard anyone actually defending the cost-benefit analysis, just so much as saying, these are our laws, these are the rules, the rules are the rules, that kind of thing. People will say it would be incredibly damaging because some people would take vaccines before they're proven to be safe. Uh, and okay. then that would set a terrible example and then other people would be scared to take vaccines. So that's the argument. And I mean, it's possible, but I think that there's like also scenarios in which it could be very beneficial. There's like scenarios yeah. in which like nobody pays attention and this doesn't matter. And so I- well, you know, Just to say, look, you took an unapproved vaccine and something bad happened. I think what people are really worried about is that people would go and do it, take unapproved vaccines, it would work great, and then the government would look stupid or worse. <laughs> That's more of the fear of this could undermine trust in our government by showing the government did a bad thing. Oh, no. <laughs> well, maybe government should just not do the bad things instead of going and trying to crush people for making them look bad. Yeah. I think that's a little bit too cynical. Maybe that's the worry of the bureaucrats. But like an ordinary person on the street who supports these laws, I think it's because they have some notion that it would cause harm if people were able to take unregulated medicines. I mean, I, I, but I, I think your argument is too sophisticated by a lot. I think the normal one is paternalism. Oh, okay. Of like people don't know their own interests and they would be suckered into going and taking bad vaccines or at least it's too high risk. So I think, I think paternalism is by far actually the more common argument. And I think this is what people will say. You'll say, well, like, why can't an adult do it if they want to? It's like, well, because they would do a bad thing and we're protecting them. And you can't expect a regular person to make judgments like this. Yeah, it's interesting that um, I, th I think people have the perception that only a complete idiot would go and get uh, the vaccine before it's approved. And so it's like you'd have this very negative selection towards like foolish behavior, getting like really bad medicines. But like the people that I knew who were like most keen to like not wait for the FDA to approve it and get vaccines are like all the smartest people that I know. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of my perception of it. Yeah, I mean, like I th you know, the stereotype of the vaccine skeptics are less smart, I think looks true. <laughs>
So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the idea that the idea that there's an alternate universe where the vaccine skeptics were rushing to get unapproved vaccines is very hard for me to believe that that was something that was an alternative thing that could have happened. Yeah, an interesting phenomenon here is, um, like, I think you and I probably mostly talk to people who are like quite a lot more educated, quite a lot more informed, probably like better reasoners than the average, and so it's quite hard for us to have a sense of where like the tenth percentile or the fiftieth percentile in, in in those capacities uh, is. I think like people in medicine actually have the opposite bias because like if you work in an emergency room, the people who are like most regularly coming into the emergency room and asking for medical help are often like are probably like below average at these capabilities, and it's like sometimes the mistakes that they're making that are causing them to have to come into hospital all the time. So yeah, I think that that's one reason I think why paternalism like rings particularly true to, to some people in medicine. Since I am a professional public opinion researcher, I at least feel like I do understand what the whole distribution thinks. It's, it's not the same as really having talked to the entire distribution in, in great detail, but you know, at least I am aware of what views are common in other parts of society. So like I do know that about half of Americans don't believe in evolution. They exist. I don't often meet them, but they're around. And, and, and I also have some understanding of what's going on. Yeah, so it's driven by biblical literalism, of course. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll stick up some links to uh, your stuff on pacifism and and all of these issues about like trading off autonomy versus uh, well-being benefits and regulation and so on. Okay, actually, the final question now, and th- this one's from the audience. You describe yourself as an arrogant hedgehog with many strange and extreme views. Given the current state of things, given the current state of academia, of the kinds of people who are out there, do you think more or fewer academics slash public intellectuals should try to emulate this style? No, definitely not. I mean, again, sort of the point of when I called myself an arrogant hedgehog is to say I'm a flawed human being and these are my failings. And I try to go and put myself to the test so that I don't do what arrogant hedgehogs usually do, which is just say a ton of wrong and ridiculous stuff. When I say I'm an arrogant hedgehog, I'm not going and saying that's a good thing to be. It's basically me just trying to remind myself of my flaws, just in the same way that I will sometimes tell my kids, now remind me to go and do this thing. And I know my kids aren't really going to remind me. They're kids. They're forgetful. But I say it out loud, and that helps me to remember by telling someone else to remind me. By acknowledging my flaw, it makes it easier for me to not have to at least mitigate the flaw. So and that's the same thing with saying I'm an arrogant hedgehog. There are a lot of arrogant hedgehogs in academia, and of course, I think most of them are have terrible views. And in particular, just you know, views that are just so silly, and they like you know they won't bet on stuff, and they just like pontificating, and you know it like just makes me sick to listen to them. Here I'm remembering John Petoritz who uh, some years back said, look, Obama's nuclear agreement with Iran, or the Iran effectively ensures that Iran will be a nuclear power in 10 years, something like that. And I just said, I don't know a lot about Iran, but you don't know enough about Iran to say that. And I did try to get him to bet me, but I, and I, but I said, but since you say it effectively ensures you should give me odds, you'd only bet at even odds, which I thought was, look, I'm just <laughs> saying I don't know, but I, what I do know is you don't know. <laughs> but, you know but, that, but again, that kind of attitude is just so standard in academia. I mean, every time there's some professor saying, the effect of this can only be 2x, I'm like, I think there's actually a lot of things the effect of that could be. And, <laughs> you know, this is just you going and repeating some stuff that you read in some book, uh, you know, like, like from some other higher status arrogant hedgehog that you are now a vessel for. So, yeah. <laughs> like, I would really like academics to be more open to big questions. That's very different from being an arrogant hedgehog, saying, like, so let's go, you know, to say, like, let's focus on questions that are more important. But at the same time, let's, like, start off by saying, like, what has anyone been able to figure out about these questions? Not let's go and find some... You know, so, you know, especially like some like continental philosophy sage and start quoting this guy and acting like this guy knew stuff. Almost the last people I would ever rely on if they were saying anything that was even meaningful in the first place, which I tend to doubt. 
Yeah. So if uh, saying you're an arrogant hedgehog is uh, kind of a claim of humility or like recognizing that there's some bad habits there. Yeah. What, what, what fraction of the kind of arrogant hedgehog opinions that you've uh, said in this podcast do you think might ultimately turn out to be wrong? When I'm talking to you, I'm trying to be my best version of me. Still, I, you know, like human knowledge is very flawed. So 15%, you know, so again, I, I need to go back because, you know, there's a waiting where I don't think there's a, like even remotely that chance that I don't feel pain. I think I'll actually put that at, there's the problem of memory knowledge. So I'm not going to go to absolutely hundred percent for, I'm not in pain right now. So in principle, I could actually, my memory could be wrong and I've never actually felt pain. But like if I were in pain, I don't want to actually put myself in pain now just to make it hundred percent true. But um, you know, there's some, there's some stuff where I always say like, 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 you know, like super low odds of ever being wrong. And then there's some other stuff where like, eh, all right, that's, that's harder stuff. Honestly, like I'm optimistic if we go through and we look and we actually did textual analysis, you'll see that I'm using words that are indicating my level of confidence throughout. I don't think I signed a lot of numerical probabilities, but you know, least English rough equivalent. So I think we could go through there and we could actually get a weighted average of everything that I said. And you know, that would be pretty reasonable. Well, on that note, uh, my guest today has been uh, Brian Kaplan. Thanks so much for coming back on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Brian. All right. Absolute fantastic pleasure to talk to you, Rob. If you'd like more of Brian, uh, you can find his blog at betonit.substack.com. I also do hope that some listeners out there will find some bets that they can make with Brian, and I'll be particularly excited if one of you manages to finally win a bet with him. If you choose the right end date, you could maybe even be the very first to do that. And if you have any relevant expertise in biology or social science uh, and have some commentary on the twin research that we discussed in this episode, drop us your thoughts at podcast at 80,000hours.org. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode were by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.